Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast. Uh, I am your host, Neve, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Connor. Welcome. 
Welcome back, everybody. And uh, also our guest co-host for all of Ray Earth, the honorary third ghost diver, Autumn. Hi. And uh, today we're going to be discussing episodes 11 through 20 of Magic Knight Ray Earth. Um, any, anyone have any like opening comments or should we just get into the episodes? We finally found out uh, why it's called that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel like I'm often saying this, but um, I'm really excited for these episodes today. Uh, there is a, a lot of intriguing content here. Um, and no, I am not only referring to Claudina, um, but uh, she definitely falls into that category. We get it, Connor. You're horny for Claudina. I am too. It's fine. <laughs> your your words, not mine. I'm... Um, you... You wrote in the notes here. I'm just going to call you out. Caldina is animated really well here three times for episode 13, which is like the most leering episode of this entire series. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I definitely I definitely didn't do that just for the two of you. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, um, a lot of intriguing content here, um, especially for like moving into season two as well. Um, so yeah, I'm ready to get started. But uh, can I interrupt very, very briefly? Well, yeah, Is especially because you're doing the first synopsis, so you're like if you're so, in control yes. here. Okay, well, so uh, about that, can somebody send me the 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 uh, the notes document again? Because I can't find it. I forgot yes. what it is. Um, <laughs> let me just. I feel like I should be talking while I'm waiting for this. Okay, thank you. Yeah. You're the best. No, I just, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to impose because you were so adamant that you didn't believe in notes. Um, On the way like, to the next Worm honor- God Temple, which is a mountain in the sky, the girls are attacked by Zagato and then saved by Princess Emerald. Emerald also sends a message to Ferio using his yak back pager telling him to save the girls at a lake near a peerless village. Quick question. What is a yak back? I think it's kind of like a bop it, <laughs> but for like like the previous generation. Meanwhile, at the village, Caldina is interrogating the villagers and demanding money and happens to see the girls in Ferio. She turns the villagers against the girls, resulting in the local bartender trying to poison them and then fight a fight breaking out as multiple villagers attack. Ferio then devises a plan with the girls wherein he distracts Caldina with the temptation of gambling while the girls escape. Caldina turns on Ferio... But when a villager stabs him, she flees, although the stabbing is revealed to have all been part of Ferio's plan. Uh, Caldina and Ascot continue to stalk the girls after they escape. Um, as the girls begin climbing to reach the Flying Mountain Temple, uh, totally normal thing that you see all the time, uh, Caldina uses a spell to make the girls think the ground is unstable, um, and large rocks are falling on them, causing the girls to uh, panic and fall off the, um, the mountain they're climbing. They go into a cave to seek shelter, where they encounter Clef, who tells them he's a Princess Emerald, uh, and she wants to talk to them. Um, so great, you know, it's not, looks like we're only going to get, uh, not going to get to 20 episodes after all. Um, although somewhat distrustful, they proceed anyway. Um, of course, this is all uh, part of Claudina's illusions, and Princess Emerald and her two guards turn into invulnerable monsters. Um, no foreshadowing there. Uh this too is revealed to be an illusion, and although the girls attempt to concentrate and shake off the illusion, uh, Umi becomes frightened anyway and runs, uh, falling off the mountain yet again. 
and then the uh, the other girls, um, I believe, fall fall after her. Um, yeah. With the girls now prone on the ground, Kaldina breaks an actual boulder free, um, and Umi reawakens just in time to um, Mario smash the boulder and uh, send a piece hurtling back to Kaldina. Um, Ascot finds Kaldina and uh, vows to kill the girls. Um, so then he goes after them. Uh, he summons some more beasts to capture Hikaru and Fu, um, but Umi confronts them, easily defeats them, um, and then slaps Ascot for abusing his beast friends and chastises him for playing into the negative stereotypes around beasts. And the outcome of all of this is that uh, Umi befriends Ascot, and he decides to stop working for Zagata. Then Ascot tries to convince Kaldina to stop trying to kill Hikaru, Umi, and Fu, uh, but she still wants the money that Zagato promised her. Um, as I mentioned previously, we get the most leering anime fan service shots so far in Ray Earth, I think possibly in the entire series, um, of Kaldina just being presented as this like bratty thought. <laughs> Um, she uses her dancer class skills. So, you know, if you're familiar with like Final Fantasy, she's like a dancer, uh, to hypnotize Hikaru and Umi and then forces Fu to fight them. Um, basically hypnotizes her as well, or is like controlling her. Um, and, uh, basically Fu's attacking them and is about to do a potentially fatal blow when Ascot jumps in the way, uh, which gives Fu the opportunity to break enough from Kaldina's charm spell uh, to attack her with a wind spell. Um, Kaldina's basically like, how were you able to do that? And Fu explains that basically she loves and cares for her girlfriends so much and would die for them. And this, like, I would die for my girlfriends gives her a greater strength than Kaldina has because Kaldina just cares about getting the money from Zagato and, like, wouldn't die for the money, would not, like, risk her life for that. Um, but Ascot, who was frozen or yeah, like paralyzed as part of this as well. Caldina was like trying to stop him, uh, was able to move because he cares so much for Caldina. So, uh, this sways Caldina's heart and she stops trying to kill them. Um, and just decides like, I'm going to be Ascot's cool big sis now. Oh, hi. Uh, hi. <laughs> we get a truly incredible. Fight. <laughs> we get a truly incredible fight sequence against a Hydra. Then we get a lot of, then we get, like, a lot of talk about how Makona has been apparently keeping a map all this time and just never told them. Uh, they could pull it up with the select button. <laughs> also, somehow, Hikaru uh, doesn't know what an RPG is, and unlike Neve, she's actually serious about not knowing and not <laughs> just being annoying to be a brat. I, hey, um, what's the yak I, I very intentionally chose who was going to read what for this episode. I could, be, I could tell. You know what? I could tell. I was like, what? <laughs> Also, it's just messing me up because, like, if I read the synopsis before I was reading aloud, I probably could have sold these jokes, but now I just sound like an idiot as I'm stumbling over words. Um, keep, keep not reading the synopses until you get to them, please. A strange light monster then comes and carries Umi and Fu away, uh, and Hikaru uses the map to find them. She gets... Cut up by thorns and beaten and bloodied and falls into a chasm and realizes the light monster is attracted to blood. It closes in on her, but she kills kills it with her sword and frees her girlfriend. Fu then heals them all. Dynamic of... <laughs> this oh. is my notes now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's the first four episodes. <laughs> we run a tight ship here. 
Just, um, just keep going. Just yeah. keep going, Otto. Just, you were on a roll there. Just blast right through the whole thing. Anyone have any starting thoughts here for these four episodes? Connor, I know you have lots, but... They don't have to be starting thoughts. They can be, I... you know... This, uh, to me, feels like very lit. The show takes a turn in these 10 episodes. Um, I don't think as much as what you all have said is coming, but the show takes a turn in these 10 episodes. This feels like very much in keeping with the, like, very lighthearted, like, who cares tone of, um, the first 10. Other than, um, like, the bit where, uh, Hikaru is like oh the monster is attracted to blood and there's like fucking blood everywhere and she like cuts her arm open to get the monster to come to her um that uh that felt like a a bit of a darker note but the the rest of the first three episodes felt like pretty you know lighthearted in the way that the rest of the show has been so far yeah I like part of it I agree with that I think like I kind of intentionally chose how I'm going to break these into chunks. And I do think that this episode 14 points the most towards like, Oh, it's getting darker now. Um, but also I think it emphasizes something that I also noticed in some of the other episodes here, which is that it, it kind of seems like the animation budget is like either increasing or they're just getting better at using it. Um, like the fight sequence with the Hydra is like, I didn't describe it here, but it is one of the best fight sequences in this show. Um, it's like very clear someone who is really good at doing dynamic like battles storyboarded it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And like everything is like, uh, like the style just feel like it almost feels like it's like gesturing towards something that like trigger does. Um, in terms of just, like, how it's animated. Like, it's not quite to that level, but, like, everything is a little bit more angular. There's, like, a lot of, like, strange angles looking up at the sky at characters and things. And that, that like, really stood out to me watching these ones. Um, and I think in general, like, I'm not going to say that the animation quality is, like, constantly consistent through these ten episodes, but it does feel like, compared to the first ten, like, there is a noticeable difference here. Um for sure. As it also moves into this darker content. But yeah, the Caldina stuff um, is still just like fun, cute. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, they do animate Caldina like leering fan service shots um really well, but <laughs> Oh, um we didn't touch on this in the summary, so I nearly forgot about it, but um the stuff with Caldina is very funny because the first time I'm watching the dub and the first time that she shows up, I'm like, why does she have a Southern accent? And I just kept <laughs> listening to it. I was like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. And then in like the third episode that she's in, I think it's episode 13. I could be wrong. Um, yeah. Like the girls are like, why does it? it it's in the um, dub. They're asking, why does she have a Southern accent? Is there like, you know, Texas and Sephiro. Um in, yeah, and in, in, in the, the sub, sub it's, it's like Osaka. why does she have an Osaka accent? And I tabbed over to the sub to see if I could hear it. I absolutely don't know what an Osaka accent sounds like. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't I don't fucking know. I, don't. I feel like Osaka accent often gets translated to Southern accent because one just like 
in terms of how it sounds, it is a little bit more drawn out. Like there, it does have the Japanese equivalent of a drawl. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's like why it often gets compared to Southern. And then also there's like a certain amount of like folksy, like rural charm associated with an Osaka accent. Um, which I think is the other reason why like that's the common dub pull is like, let's make this a Southern accent. Um, for, for like, ghost divers fans when we talked about uh the jameson unit i forget the the name of that ceo but he has an osaka accent which i think in the dub they also do is like a texan accent um and it's like remarked upon as well in that of like in that one in particular that like seems yeah tacky and like put upon like he's like trying to do this to seem like oh i'm just like some you know like laid back country salesman um but yeah, th- this is a thing that will like continue to come up. Um, there's a character in Xenosaga games as well who uh, has an Osaka accent, and then it gets translated to a Texan accent in the <laughs> the American versions of the games. So, um, but yeah, the the full explanation for like we'll get to season two, and and they'll develop further people with Osaka accents. <laughs> I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't. Do you do you want to do you want to get into some of your stuff, Connor? Because you always have the <laughs> most notes, and I find it easiest to just react to you. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Um, no problem. Um, I I come prepared. Um, well, some. So before I get into all of these like arcane and very tedious notes, um, I just have some like general thoughts about moving um you know through these this last chunk of episodes um especially now watching re earth again i'm i'm starting to perceive like there's a lot of subtle um narrative logic this is kind of what i was talking about last time um there are a lot of things that are happening in season one um even before it takes like this kind of um this turn for the the darker in like 18, 19, 20. Um, and it has that like suite of episodes that close it out. Um, and I don't really see these like hard breaks as much tonally. Um, you know, where like, Oh, okay. You know, 14 is darker. Um, and then it's darker like for the rest of the time. Um, I'm starting to see like a lot more through lines and, just the way like certain tensions are um, evolving uh, and that to me like drives it more than um, like explicit tonal shifts. Um, hopefully that, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'll explain I was, what um, I mean later on. I was thinking uh, in episode 19 and 20, like, Oh, this is a lot darker than what's come before. And I was also thinking about um, double Zeta Gundam which is like a show where in episode, I think 15, like a character comes in, like they introduce a new character and like the whole, the whole, everything changes, like the tone, the plot, everything changes. Um, I, I was thinking in those last two episodes of the first season that I thought this show does a very good job of like gradually making those changes. And like, you know, episode 14, is kind of darker but episode 13 and 15 are kind of lighter 
And I think it does a good job of like weaving in like, okay, we're moving in a new direction, but it's not just like, bam, all of a sudden, here's something totally new. Yeah, like here's this forced tonal shift. Um, Yeah, and I think once we get to like 19 and 20, I know we'll discuss this at length, so I'm not going (laughs) to front load the ghost divers again. Um, But I, I see it as like, there are some of these tensions that we staked out last time um that are continue to like bubble underneath the surface um and the show continues to like even while it like kind of uh suspends a certain like veneer of a certain tonal veneer of like oh you know it's this light-hearted magical girl like you know with all these tropes um it it feels like it's almost holding that in arms holding that at arm's length or as like um a placeholder um while like these other things that it's doing are like just these tensions are continuing to build and like anxieties around these um conflicts and tensions are just like churning up uh, different manifestations uh, of these problems, like as they become uh, more and more like unignorable and more and more intractable, um, culminating in like 1920, where we just like finally hit this wall where it uh, emerges fully into the light. Um, all of these tensions are like fully confronted. So uh, yeah, um, those are very long-winded introductory remarks. Um, hopefully we can chart that out. Like as we move through, um, the I guess the first note I had was I was noticing as we were watching through, like the color coding of characters. Um, I don't know how much to draw out of this, other there, than just like there's a like ma- I have, kind of I have a note when we get to eighteen and nineteen that I think does connect a little bit more here, um, but I mean we can get into it right now as well. Um, but I, I think I have like, there is a certain symbolism that is happening here, um, that, that I have noticed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I know where you're going with that. So I'm just gonna, like, I'm just gonna tee it up for you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna set it for you to spike, you know, um, Mm -hmm. sports terms. Um, so obviously like Hikaru is red, Yumi is blue and Fu is green, um, and then with that as like our base palette, so to speak, um, there's color mapping that happens for all these other characters. Um, Furio is obviously green. Um, and perhaps coincidentally, he is part of the MK squad. Um, Prisea, she's like red and yellow. Um, but red, yeah. uh, is the gem on her forehead and her eyes. Um, so she's clearly like associated with red. Um, she eventually joins the Magic Knights. Uh, Caldina is red, uh, red and pink, but like p- particularly red. Um, joins the Magic Knights. Ascot is green, joins the Magic Knights. Lafarga is blue, joins the Magic Knights. Um, so just like, you know, based on the color connections here, um, it's already like the destinies of these characters are already embedded, um, or the ultimate like allegiances. Um, something about, uh, the show is doing something with their, you know, potentially the inherent like nature of this character is 
going mm-hmm. to incline them to like a certain allegiance, um, you know, uh, ultimately. Um, Clef is blue and white. Emerald is white. Um, there's pink and white. Um, we can get into that. I don't really uh, know how to suss that out, <laughs> how to suss that out exactly. Um, but uh, the the other part that's more clear is like Zagato is purple and black. Um, Alcione is purple. The gem on her forehead is purple. A lot of her clothing is purple. Um, and then Inova is also purple with a purple gem on his forehead. Um, so this like purple, 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 um, you know, is Zagato and then the two people who don't um, eventually join the Magic Knights who stay with Zagato. Um, so again, uh, I know I talked last time about like some of these subtle touches um, that Ray Earth does to connect these characters or like uh, compare them. And I would be remiss if I didn't uh, bring this up because this is clearly um, something that, uh, that it's doing as well. Yeah. Um, also we will, we will get more to Innova here. Um, I want to make a, a like quick note here of, I do not speak Japanese well enough to like fully follow all dialogue. Um, but I feel like from what I was able to pick up, I often did not hear the actual Japanese gendering Enova as much as you just like have to in English. And I, I think he is the one that makes sense because it like is what comes up, but we'll, we'll talk more about Enova here. Um, but I like want to prefigure here of like when, like, I wish that I could like fully just pull up a script and go through Enova and be like, what pronouns are used if ever for, for him? Um, mm. Because yeah, there's definitely some like ambiguous gender stuff happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I could hear from some of the, the Japanese lines that I was picking up, it seemed like compared to other characters, they were even more intentional about saying like Enova to, to refer to him as a character um, rather than like, other pronouns and also Japanese is just a language where you can talk about someone without using their pronouns um, far more extensively than like English is. Um, Cause again, you can kind of just establish a subject and then make statements um, that are all implied to be about that subject without having to like restate a pronoun to like continue to, to construct those sentences. Um, mm-hmm. It's just like a grammatical feature of um of Japanese that when we do Kino's journey, I'll get into a lot more because um, it's especially significant for Kino's journey. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I, yeah know, I, um, I will have, I know you more, want to touch on that later. Yeah. I will have more when we, when we like, when we get to episode 18 or 19 and 20, cause I think that's where some of this color stuff, like I, I can make a stronger case. Um, but I do think, for I I need to like look up Enova's design again. Um, but I know like like I feel like in some ways purple is often kind of a stand in for black in like the style of nineties anime. Um mm-hmm. and black definitely figures heavily in Zagato's design as well as Alcione's. Um she's basically wearing like black leather outfit that have like purple highlights, um, and then the purple gem on her forehead. Um but yeah, there's something about um, when I was going through this earlier, 
I was looking at all the character designs just like, cause it, it, I, I had the notion and then I was like, okay, is this, does this really hold up? Um, so I was going through all the character designs and Innova is definitely, um, was a little bit challenging. Um, yeah, I, but I'm looking at Innova now and I'm like, I, I have a read on this and we can like, we can get to it when we get to Innova. <laughs> I can talk about it more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think, um, I ended up falling on like the gems. Um, the color of the gem is just like, I don't know if I want to do a whole like extended analysis on why I think that is like the primary identifier, um, yeah. in, in this schema. Um, but it just seems like it, it's a, it's a strong gesture of like, oh, here's this gem on the person's forehead, like this, <laughs> and this is the color. Um, and again, it presupposing the existence of the schema, which I think is like, is obvious. Um, you know, we, we have to take that into account. Um, yeah. so that's why I fell on purple for Innova and like, I, likewise with red for Persea. Yeah. I think, um, the thing I will, I will just say here while we're talking about colors and we'll get this more with Enova is, or yeah, when we talk about Enova in more detail is that, um, I think the Enova being purple and white instead of purple and black actually does make sense for the character, but we, we can talk about that more when we like get to Enova. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I know, I think I know that one character that's like worth diving into a little bit more here is just Caldina and the stuff that's happening around Caldina. Um, just because like, I mean, we can talk a little bit more about Ascot too, but like both of them leave here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Caldina, I'm, I'm just going to like set this up and then put this off. Um, Caldina, like we talked last time about the way the show seems to set up like modes of femininity. Um, and Caldina is like this this other mode um i mean i'll I'll let you to provide your own descriptions um but i'll just put these in like scare quotes um like she represents a kind of like independent woman um there's a, a lot of insistence from her she talks a lot about um being independent um her obsession with money is kind of a means to that end um she is like you know I think figured as this like sexually liberated um, woman, um, it, all these things are like uh, tied together um, with her character. Uh, I don't want to get too deep into trying to like say exactly what I think is happening. Um, so I'll, I'll just uh, with that comment, I'll just uh, pass it off to, to you two. Yeah, I, I wrote the note of Caldina as another type of femininity, bratty, vain, greedy, obsessed with money and possessions. Um, and like, for, from my perspective, part of why I love this show is there's just a, you know, we, we have multiple bratty pink haired girls on this show. Um, it's great. <laughs> like pink, <laughs> pink or red. Um, but yeah, Caldina, I think of like, of these Zagato minion character figures i think caldina is my favorite um just because there there is something like appealing to me about having this character who i think in many ways 
does feel like a fairly strong character and like really her her biggest weakness which is revealed in the you know episode 13 with the uh confrontation with Fu is just that like at this point in her life that like sense of independence that sense of like i i am trying to like be on my own is just really geared towards like and i just want money <laughs> like i just want like to get a bunch of money and have like, like this is my goal. And that that is like positioned by the show as being not as great of a strength compared to like foo being gay for her girlfriends. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And that's like the, the thing here that changes for Caldina and that makes Caldina side with the magic Knights is specifically realizing that she like, actually does care for uh, Ascot and Ascot cares for her in terms of like, it is, it is really set up as the sibling relationship. Um, Mm. The show never makes it creepy. I want to like make that clear to people who may not be watching along that there's like never any creepy overtones or undertones or anything with Caldina and Ascot. It's It's... invoked as like a sister. She says like, he's like a little brother to me. (laughs) Yeah. But I just especially want to emphasize this here because anime can make, brother sister relationships horny this is the thing that happens in anime it's not happening here <laughs> i want to make that clear yeah um and it, it is also part of the reason why i really like her as a character and like the way that the relationship between her and ascot develops um as this like actually us just like being a little family and traveling around is like actually a a preferable outcome to then like what we're currently engaged in. Um, and that is like their break from, you know, we'll get more into Zagato later, but from like, I think the things that Zagato represents as this like overbearing, like masculinity that is attempting to fix this problem, but not in any like actual meaningful way. Um, mm-hmm. The like problem at the core of the show. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, the thing with Caldina, and th- this is like a, kind of a larger uh, subject um, that I, I think I have a note in here um, somewhere about this. Um, the way that the show like insists on redeeming characters, and maybe that's the wrong verbiage, but um, it is really an interesting dynamic um, because mm-hmm. one thing I think we have to reckon with is like, some of these characters, Zagato's minions specifically, like before they're redeemed, um, display like, I mean, it's not only that they're doing bad things, like they display very real like sadism. Um, and then it is like, and then like, you know, in spite of that, it's generally like right at the beginning, they're framed as like being extremely sadistic. Um, and then it kind of takes like steps to walk it, you know, to walk them down from like sadism to like, Oh, sympathetic. It does this with pretty much like every villainous character in, in season one. But this, I think this is a dynamic of Claudina as well, that like um, her insistence on like being independent um, leads itself directly to like this complete seeming lack of empathy um, for everyone except for Ascot. Um, Mm -hmm. and then it, you know, like she, 
the torture that she like puts the villagers through, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you're watching along, hopefully you know what I mean. But yeah, I don't think it's coincidental that Ascot, like the one person who she reserves this like grain of empathy for, is eventually like the route um, or the seed that like um, eventually sprouts into like a greater sense of empathy. Um, but I just think like this is an interesting dynamic, and Claudina is is one uh, example of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also like. Autumn, if you have any thoughts, I'm not just going to blow past you. Um, no, no, I, I, I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, I was just going to say, like, also, the other thing that comes with Caldina is, like, illusions. Caldina uses illusion magic and, like, her dancer style, but they're basically the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, yet again, illusions are, like, the returning... Um, we saw them at Spring of Eterna. We saw them in uh, Umi's Fake Tokyo and Vigor's Disguise. Um, and again, there's this question of like in Sephiro, where it's this world of wish fulfillment where your desires can become reality. What does it mean that there are illusions? Um, there's this kind of like preponderance of illusions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a way, uh, they're like a foil for uh for wishes um they're often they often seem to be revealing some sort of dark underside of a person's motivations um obviously a, a hidden fear or uh anxiety or just a thing about themselves that uh they don't want to acknowledge and in this way like the the artifice of illusions becomes a mirror um for this like wish fulfillment this wishing so uh yeah and then um i uh (laughs) this this moment where umi slaps ascot uh i'm just gonna say like we'll think about this later on um but i just want to put a pin i'm I'm just gonna read our group line chat of uh autumn laughing about nia saying i'm umi and umi smacking the shit out of a nine-year-old uh then i say (laughs) i forgot about that scene when i said that the scene that most makes me say that i'm hikaru and your umi is in episode 14 um then connor says in quotes i like ascot just remember you said that autumn (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) so we'll get to season two um I feel like we can talk a little bit about episode 14 here. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like this is the one, like you have the most notes about episode 14 here, Connor. And also yeah. this is a, this is an interesting episode. Cause again, like I agree that I think this show figures like change and evolution um, as a thematic element. Like that's why Escudo is what it is. I think is to like signal yeah. that this is a, a thing about, that this show is about or is like um, making us part of its structure. But this is definitely one where I think it it is um, easy to point to as like, Oh, here is a, a noticeable shift in the same way that like the armor will sometimes noticeably like evolve and, and become, you know, more ornate and like larger, um, like a, a, a stronger piece of armor that they're wearing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think, in a way, um, I see episode 14. So obviously it's like a Hikaru episode. Um, and having seen season two, and this is not fair to you, Autumn, 
So since you haven't uh, seen season two, um, but I think uh, a lot of stuff that happens here actually gets fleshed out more like in Hikaru's season two arc. Definitely. Um, yeah. And, and um, so again, like this just further informs my, like my view of rare earth now as like, yep. Not as like a chain with links in it. Um, but as like this kind of bubbling cauldron of all these different themes that are like, you know, moving around and surfacing it at different times. Um, and this one is like, okay, yeah, episode 14, season one, like, has all this shit in it. <laughs> and then it all comes up in season two. Um, yeah. But <laughs> I mean, it, it gets reiterated really... in episode 18 as well. I think episode 18, as the, like, we'll get to it, but as the episode of, like, Hikaru going to the volcano temple and getting uh, the rune mm-hmm. god Ray Earth, like, both 14 and 18, I think, suggest something that's going on with Hikaru that, like, doesn't really get resolved here. Um, specifically, I think around, like, it happens, I think 14 is one of the first big ones where it happens, but then it also happens, like, throughout some of the later fights that go on, um, and we, we get the culmination, so we can talk about this more when we get to 18, but, like, we get a culmination there, but of this, like, the way that blood is being figured and Hikaru's, like, continual risking of her life um in an extreme way that we don't see a lot of other characters doing to like protect those around her um in this way that like borders on like self-destructive or um like we she is the one that we see most often like bleeding severely and continuing to push on and trying to like protect others um in a way that most other characters she's already like bleeding a lot for some reason yeah Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> a lot of blood yeah um i like this episode any <laughs> um weird i don't i couldn't imagine why yeah um um so do you do you want me to go through these notes and then we can just kind of like sure sure debate okay um so the first thing i'm just gonna this is like adjacent to the subject but um getting off blood for a quick second um uh, 14 opens with this extended monologue from Hikaru where she's like, basically the punchline of it is that she's just increasingly identifying with her like destiny, um, i.e. like this magic knight narrative. Um, we talked a lot last time about, you know, the imposition of this magic knight narrative, the internalization, um, and how that relates to um, this tension between like, uh, you know, um, determination and then like so a kind of self-fashioning or free will there is then like this meta discussion about rpgs um which further reinforces um this again this this whole concept um so i'm just gonna like i just want to gesture towards that because um this is something that is continuing to um be touched on Um, i I also want to emphasize in this moment both of you as people who are very good friends of me, please play Chrono Cross, the game that is extremely invested in JRPGs are often <laughs> about fate. Let's explore like the dynamic between destiny and free will um, in a like very serious way as part of a JRPG. In the same way that Ray Earth also does. Uh, mm-hmm. There's perhaps a reason why I really loved Ray, Ray Earth uh, as someone who really loved Chrono Cross. 
<laughs> I'm I play Chrono Trigger. I'm still doing my initial playthrough. <laughs> I play it for like two hours every three months, <laughs> and then I just like don't I I don't know why. Uh, it's but I I need to like get through that before I do Chrono Trigger. Yeah, you do so, everything sorry. in like to an extreme degree. You do everything in release order. Yeah, um, which is often I'm a very, good way to do it, but you like it's impossible to break you from it. I found I'm pa- I'm pathological. Um, even just being um, like, listen to this album, and you will listen to every single album that like anyone related to that band has done before <laughs> that album. <laughs> anyway, yes, that it's very true. Um, yeah, um, it's it's a problem I know, um, but moving on. Um, Blood, yes. Uh, Blood is a big deal here. Um, As you already touched on, Nia, like, the show, or this episode is lingering on the fact of bleeding, like, extensively. Um, There are numerous shots and sequences that, like, stand out as uh, focusing, like, as out of the ordinary um, for how much they are focusing on Makona observing the blood on the ground and being concerned and like running after Hikaru. Yeah, like this whole she runs through a thorny forest and it shows her being cut like at least a couple times. There's like blood dripping off the thorn or whatever, um, or like a piece of her like red outfit hanging from the thorn and it looks like bloody flesh. Like Makona, as you said, coming after seeing like this massive trail of blood that is like not like that's like it's like a bleeding out level of blood it's like really exaggerated um then like hikaru like bleeding all the way to this chasm she falls in the chasm she's like trying to climb out there's a uh a shot directly of her hand with like a rock falling on it and crushing her fingers and like blood spurting out um it I watched the episode and and you'll know what we what we mean. Um, it it's pretty explicit, and uh, yeah, I think um, there are a lot of ways that we could talk about the way blood is working in this episode. Um, it in my note I just said it has something to do with love and sex. Um, we at the very beginning of the episode we have this like very intimate hug uh, between Hikaru and Umi. Um, where like yeah we all agree they're girlfriends but um, mm-hmm. I don't know here, how you watch that hug and don't be like oh th- they fuck it <laughs> yeah like if I had to confront someone who was just like a total street reader and like refused to and who was like no, no no you have to convince me with textual evidence from a point of like not believing this at all um, this is one of the things I would point to as being like come on this is this is very strong um like it's very clear that you know there's a romantic dimension here um and uh so what the episode starts with this and then all the bleeding has to do with her trying to like save umi and fu um so i think the blood is resembling like one or all of the following things um like mature sexuality. Um, I'm just going to point at that road and not go down it. Um, 
desire, like as the cliche poetic, like blood stirring desire. Um, Hikaru's inner emotions starting to leak out. Um, so a kind of like, you know, blood resembling her, um, being a messy gay bitch. Yeah. Whatever is going on there. Um, uh, yeah. Leaking out in this kind of like, uh, messy, sticky way. And then of course, like the thing that you touched on, um, her willingness to sacrifice herself, like as in bleeding for others. Um, so there's this whole like matrix of symbolism um, going on here for Hikaru's character. And uh, just as like my parting thought on this subject, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that the monster in this episode is attracted to blood. Um, I think we basically have to read it this way, especially because yeah. Hikaru has this comment of like, when she's fighting the monster, she's like, I think it's after she defeats it. She says to herself, like, oh, so this monster is a creation of the heart. Um, it is, yeah. like, a it implied accretion of, of her heart or reflection somehow. Yeah, definitely um, because of, one, we get, like, explanations that monsters are created by fears. And then there's a part where they talk to Clef, and Clef is like, I don't know this monster. It's new. Um, yep. Which kind of implies that, like, there must be some new fear in this world that creates this monster, um, which you can then, like, connect to, well, there are three new, like, humans in this world, <laughs> one of them being Hikaru. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and the form of the monster is significant. Um, it's like a tornado, um, a maelstrom. Um, so it's, you know, dangerous, out of control. It goes after individuals, uh, specifically... Umi and Fu, and then eventually Hikaru, but most importantly, Umi and Fu, um, attracted by their bleeding, um, and then basically like seizes them and carries them around um, to, to possess them. Um, so a kind of uh, possessiveness here. Again, this might be significant for season two. Um, yeah. A fantastic uh, episode, uh, a lot of good, uh, intriguing content here. For Hikaru's character. Yeah. Just a reminder that I'm Hikaru. Do you have any uh, comments here, Autumn, or do we want to move on to episode 15 through 18? <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't have a ton, no. Are, okay. we, are we doing a good job? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is this tracking with your with what, with your uh, your perception of the show so far? Um, it, yeah. Excellent. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Inova? Just, yeah. Um, this is it. This. I, I will just say a little bit here. Episode 14 really is an episode where I look at this and I'm like, oh, I'm Hikaru. Um, this comes up like me being like, I'm Hikaru and also Nova um, really relates to season two. But as you've mentioned here, like, this episode figures a lot of stuff that's going to happen in, in season two um, in a way where um, I, I kind of watched this episode and laughed because I was like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it really is that plain. Um, uh, so episodes 15 through 18. I'm giving you a break here, Connor, from doing the synopses because I'm having you do both uh, 19 and 20. Um for reasons will become apparent as um, Autumn and I do 
these ones. So okay. <laughs> I don't um, fucking trust you. It's right of you to not trust me. This so is why we notes start- are important. <laughs> We start with a brief scene of Inova, uh, who we've been talking about previously, who asks Zagato uh, to allow him to try to kill the um, Magic Knights. I did some sort of weird typo there, but I think allow is what I meant. Um, thank you for fixing it. <laughs> um, as Sephira begins to crumble without Princess Emerald as the pillar, uh, the girls take shelter from i believe it's like discussed as being the first natural storm to occur in Sephiro. um we've mm. seen some magically created ones but this is just like a storm happening um so they're they're climbing the mountain to get to the temple of the sky god um and they take shelter in the cave ferio calls foo um he is also stuck in the storm and seeking shelter and they basically tell him like we're in this cave um on his way to meet up with them Ferio rescues a girl named Sarah. I'm going to take a quick diversion here. So first I'm going to send you this of, um, we had the village peerless village. I forgot to add these to the document. A uh, peerless village is named after peerless motor company. So I just sent you an ad. It was like an old motor company. Um, and then Sarah is named after the Toyota Sarah, which I'm going to send this image to you. Let me, let me copy it real quick. Um, I'm sending these in the, the discord chat. Um, why please it says that it is too large of a file god damn it um copy image can you please do this one there we some go. really high-res car photos there <laughs> yeah um so the toyota sarah is one of those like i think the delorean's the most infamous one because of back to the future but where like the doors like lift up the butterfly doors um, yeah the butterfly doors so uh, I've added those to the document. So for listeners at home, you've probably already seen them. But um, I totally just forgot about Sarah and Peerless Village when I was making that document. Um, so anyway, Ferio rescues this girl named Sarah. Um, and basically, Ferio is like giving attention to her in the cave. Um, and Fu gets very jealous about this. Uh, Ferio falls. So th- throughout it, like... There's a part where uh, it's at night and she's cooking or something, or I think Ferio's cooking. And then she's like, oh, I have some herbs and puts it in there. Um, and in the morning, Ferio falls ill with a fever. Um, and as they are leaving to go to the temple, Fu like tries to forgive him for fawning over Sarah. Um, and like does this moment of trust of being like sarah please watch over my sick boyfriend while we go to this temple um and basically as soon as they're gone sarah reveals herself to be a nova um ties ferio up and then leaves to fight the magic knights um yeah there's there's just like a a lot of kind of convoluted romantic drama happening here um (laughs) then while fu uh speaks with the phoenix wyndham in the uh, temple, Hikaru and Umi are confronted by Inova. Um, Inova almost succeeds in defeating them, as well as Fu, but uh, Fu demonstrates her strength of heart. I kind of forget how, again, like Fu feels the least developed as a character to me, um, but basically demonstrates her strength of heart and her, her love for her girlfriends, and um, Wyndham turns into a mech and obliter- obliterates Inova. Um, it's it's Furio, like Inova's yeah. like- I'll tear Furio apart if you don't. 
Yeah, and she's like, oh, uh, well, Ferio would want me to, you know, prioritize Sephiro over him, and, you know. Yeah, uh, she's like, ha, just some- like, I I know what you don't know, which is that Ferio loves being tied up, so yeah, I don't give a shit. Yeah, just some straight girl shit. Um, anyway, <laughs> Inova uh, almost succeeds, but then Wyndham sees the strength of heart and just, like, completely obliterates Inova. Um, and then... Wyndham's like, hey, you have to level up a little bit before you can equip me, but I'm going to upgrade like all of your armor and swords and then just go into your armor and chill out until the end of the series uh, or the end of the season. Um, and then back at the cave, Ferio is like, I'm sorry for ca- causing all of this um, and leaves and is like, forget about me. Um, but uh, Fu is still very heterosexual for him and cries to Hikaru about it. And she's like, don't give up hope. Um, keep loving him. Uh, I know that I love you, but also continue to love your boyfriend. <sighs> Next episode. <laughs> Zagato and Emerald converse, and she begs him to stop, but he says his heart will not change, and he is willing to destroy the world for his desire. He then tells Emerald that he is going to use her own guard, Lafarga, who he is mind-controlling to go on to kill the Magic Knights. Meanwhile, the Magic Knights are attacked by a flying monster on their way to a volcano temple, and in the process discover that if anyone but Fu tries to hold her sword, it's too heavy to lift, and if anyone other than Umi tries to use her sword, they hold it like water in their hands. Lafarga rescues them from the monster, but then attacks while the session bassist goes hard in the background music, saying he needs to be the one to kill him himself. Lafarga defeats them, but when... Uh, Hikaru drops her sword, he tries to pick it up uh, to use it against her and is burned by its flames. The fire burns off the mind control face paint. He regains his memory and tells them all he will find a way to help them save Princess Emerald. Uh, yeah, background music in the Lafarga fight. Fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. I was, I was yeah. like, what the hell is happening here? Because so much of the rare background music is just like the same like motifs over and over yeah. again. And this I one is just to, like, it's uh, like a shredding bass solo. I had to like, I was watching the scene and then I started to notice the music and I was like, what the fuck? And I had to like go start the scene over and I was like, what the fuck is happening with this bass line? <laughs> and then you, you just tweeted about sometimes in anime, like 90s anime, the background music, just like some session bassist will go hard. And then I pulled up my Ray Earth music collection because I have literally every Ray Earth song um, known to man, I think. And I was just like, is it this one? (laughs) And I I got it right. I knew which one it was. I I stole that tweet. There was some video that went around on the TL like maybe a year ago that was just like some toku scene uh just like some random like you know random fucking common rider gaim fight scene where just for no reason somebody like lost his damn mind and just did like the coolest baseline you've ever heard and this was extremely the same thing <laughs> yeah, you gotta throw the basis to bone once in a while yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, next episode, Sephiro continues to crumble, um, and Clef reaches out to the Magic Knights one last time, saying that he will soon succumb to Zagato's stone spell, um, and can hold on no longer. 
Meanwhile, Anova once again implores his top to let him go and kill the Magic Knights, uh, this time in his true form. Um, they reveal that uh, Zagato and Inova have been in some into some pl- uh, pet play shit here um, as Zagato returns Anova to the form of a giant wolf monster. Um, then, meanwhile, Ferio's memories begin to return to him and... Uh, you know, it's related to Princess Emerald's powers weakening as uh, she's like losing more and more control over Sephiro. Um, and he realizes that he is actually Emerald's brother. Um, and when he was a child, he asked her to basically wipe his memory so that she could like be free from worrying about him because she has to focus on her job of praying for all of Sephiro. Um, but now that her powers are weakening, those like memories return to him. Um, so. Then throughout this, the Magic Knights are fighting Inova in beast form and uh, are basically about to be defeated. Like they cannot, you know, Inova has been invulnerable, um, but Ferio now knows Inova's weakness and tells the Magic Knights to attack the weak spot, which is the gem on Inova's forehead. So Hikaru attacks with her sword um, and kills Inova ripped to a real one. Um, and then Alcione begs Zagato to let her try one more time at defeating the magic Knights, but he ignores her. Um, and then the following episode, we start again on Alcione here, who is overhearing Zagato and Emerald, um, talking and basically is like starting to piece together. Like, wait, there's, there's some strange stuff happening here. Uh, Zagato doesn't actually seem interested in ruling Sephiro. Like we've seen him doing mind control shit, you know, Caldina can also do mind control shit. Like maybe there's a reason why you couldn't control Emera, but it still seems like, why is he not in any way trying to control her? If his goal is like rule Sephiro, like why not just control her and have her do what he wants to like Sephiro? Um, and also notes that Zagato has never heard hurt Emerald, at least directly. Um, I would, I would argue that like using mm-hmm. people that she cares about to attack other people is still a form of hurting someone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just an emotional we'll sense. Yeah. Um, Anyway, she's wondering over the true motivation, uh, but Zagato goes and is like, I'm the only one who can defeat them who remains um, and goes to fight the Magic Knights. Uh, We cut to the Magic Knights and they are now at the temple of the flame god Ray Earth. Um, Hikaru, as throughout the series, whenever they're at these temples, like kind of goes into a trance state, enters into the heart of the volcano um, where Umi and Fu cannot proceed and converses with Ray Earth, who appears as it's like remarked as being both lion-like and wolf-like um, has a mane of fire, but kind of resembles a wolf. Um, and then uh, Zagato, you know, we've learned the formula now while the one person is like occupied talking to the rune god someone will attack and uh basically defeat the other two so zagato attacks um and basically strips like the armor and swords and power from umi and fu um then hikaru emerges and uh he's trying to attack umi and fu and she shields them um, loses her armor and powers in the process, but nonetheless refuses to stand down um, and basically would be killed by the next attack. But then Lafarga jumps in the way and blocks the blow um, and is like basically down for the count. Uh, Zagato 
is then going to do his most powerful spell against Hikaru to just like completely fuck her up. Uh, but sh- yet she still stands and is like trying to protect her girlfriends. Um, and Ray Earth finally intercedes. Uh, it took him a while to be like, you clearly seem to be ready to die for your girlfriends. Um, and as Zagato's doing this like ultimate spell, Ray Earth counters it and then drives Zagato back. Um, and now Hikaru has a mech and it's a mech show now. We we finally made it there. Um so that's that's these four episodes. Uh I don't know if anyone has any word in particular to start. I feel like Inova is like the the big one to talk about at the beginning. I just wanna here. say I just wanna say I don't know if I'm the only one who who enjoyed this, but um Lafarga's like Wilhelm screams during his like <laughs> battle scenes or whatever. Um uh those are just, those are so good. Um, the audio engineer really, really did a great job with this. <laughs> I want to just like splice them all together into like a 15 second track and, uh, and post it somewhere. Those are just, they're really, they're really just excellent. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? So we talked about this a little bit with the, previous chunk of four episodes but i thought it made more sense to like dive into it here a bit which is just that like so everybody gets fucking mind controlled in this show yeah. uh it happens to everybody at least once um and like the thing that was really interesting to me about that is just that like because um Sephiro is a land of will and your will is um, the thing that matters most, like kind of the scariest thing that you can do to a person in the fiction of the show is, um, you know, take away their ability to make choices. Um, and I don't have, I maybe don't have a ton to say about it when it happens to Lafarga and when it happens to, you know, other characters, but um, I just want to like, you know, mention that now and then we can really hit hit on that in episodes 19 and 20 and how like you know choice is uh by far the most important thing in life to somebody from Sephiro. <laughs> yeah um yeah. i i think it plays into it it obviously plays into this like again this destiny like free will tension um and how like I, I think we have notes on this later um that that flesh this out uh like in, in greater detail. Um but how the collision between these two this this paradox and these different elements like continue to collide, um and how the collision is like manifesting in these different ways. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, it's a land of will. Um, so if you have like a stronger will than somebody, then you dominate their will. Or like if your two wills are in conflict, like the one that's stronger for like whatever reason, you know, wins out. And what does that look like? And what does that mean for the person who has like the quote unquote weaker will? Um, is it really then like, you know, yeah, what does that mean, like, for their will? 
um, for their agency. Um, and yeah, the, the brainwashing, like, as you really point out is, um, a disturbing, uh, manifestation of this, uh, this kind of conflict that's underlying the the whole series, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the, the, like part that it further complicates it or like makes that like adds a strange tension, um, is that for the most part, a lot of this like mind control or like losing of this free will by the show is like very clearly figured as something bad happening, especially when it happens to like Hikari, Umi and Fu, um, except when it is them like going into this trance state to go talk to the room gods. Um, mm. And the show does not frame that like in these in the moments where you're originally seeing them as being like particularly unsettling. But I think yeah. that the show actually is framing it as like what is happening to them in those moments, like is pointing towards episode in 19 where it actually does become something that's a little bit more unsettling or a little bit more. Um, yeah. Just like them becoming the magic Knights is not necessarily a great fate for them <laughs> as mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get to. Um mm-hmm. The other thing I want to kind of bring up here, uh, I, I was debating on when to do this, but um, and I was thinking of like maybe doing it right, getting into 18 and 19, but I think it makes sense to talk about it in the context of all of this, which is we kind of talked about the, the colors of, um, you know, obviously we have red, blue, and green for Hikaru, Umi, and Fu, um, mm-hmm. but then we have like, you know, Ascot, Kaldina, Lafarga, like these... Uh, lackeys who are coded in colors of the magic knights and that end up like breaking from it. Whereas the two that stay are, um, Inova and Alcione and like stay with Zagato. And I think this also then parallels with the two people who stay with Zagato, stay with Zagato out of love for him. Um, Ascot does not have any sort of like great emotional connection with Zagato really like Ascot has this love of like his beast friends, I think mm-hmm. um, is the way that the show like figures that this is like what Ascot cares about the most is I love my friends who are these like beasts that the world views as monsters um, and believes that Zagato is a place where the, the monsters can be free, but kind of learns throughout the process of it that in fact, Zagato is viewing them as monsters, but just once monsters who can like enact violence for him. And that actually he needs to like break from that in order to help his, his beasts like break from this like negative use of them. But, but really he is driven by this, like this love for his beasts. And that is a thing that like pre that figures him as being separate from like Zagato's goals. And in this way, in the same way that Caldina has, I mean, originally this love for money and Zagato pays well, but ends up kind of discovering that actually she cares more about like Ascot and this sibling relationship that we've talked about. Um, and so like, I think like love continues to figure here. Uh, Lafarga is the one who's developed the least. Like we really just have this one episode of Lafarga and then him coming up to like take a blow for Hikaru. Um, of the, the lackeys, I feel like Lafarga is the least developed, but we do get yeah. like, he, is this like devoted guard of Emerald. Um, and so we can kind of read in like some degree of like love or, or connection to Emerald in this way. Um, 
and then escapes when like the mind control face paint burns off um is how i i at least i understand what's happening there um but then alcione we discover throughout the the course of the season loves the gato she you know foolishly is in love with this like i don't we can talk about zagato when we get to 19 and 20 i think he is a, a terrible man even though he is also yes. acting out of love yes um, he's like a terrible awful man <laughs> um and she chooses to like continue to stay with him throughout all of this even as he like clearly has no affection for her um which gets really emphasized in these episodes like the degree to which zagato does not care for alcione and is literally just using her because she loves him um and then Inova, I mean, I, I joked about pet play, but it is like really figured as this like Inova really, really loves Zagato, I think. <laughs> like there is queerness mm-hmm. to read into this, and we can we can jump into talking more about Inova in a second. Um, because he dies for the love that he has for Zagato. This is where the color part, like I was talking earlier, Connor, I can see the white because I think also part of what is maybe being suggested here is like so Inova is specifically a pet that Emerald gave to Zagato. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also like Inova representing in some degree Emerald who's being represented as white. Um, but then like this like weird mixing of what's happening between Emerald and Zagato uh, throughout the series. And that like when we get to 19 and 20, we can talk about more. Um, but part of me just wants to go into like thoughts about the extreme queer coding of Inova. <laughs> Anyone have any thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I I kind of don't just because like I feel like these sorts of shows always have the sort of faggy villain character um and to the point where I don't put much stock in it even when it is a show like Rare Earth that is like very clearly to me putting in a lot of other gay shit in other places when i just see a like a you know queer coded villain character i'm just like kind of it's it's just noise to my brain that every single animated thing ever has has this character and so i kind of just don't really notice it a lot of the time (laughs) yeah um i like some of it is just like i i love inova a lot as a minion of Zagato. Um, one, because like, like, I would just love someone to say to me, to me, your wish means the world, my Lord. <laughs> uh, that's just a great line to have a character delivered to Zagato. Um, but I, I also think like, you know, we'll, we will get more into the way that this like series complicates queer coding different characters. And I agree. This is the one that feels the most like in line with a lot of, both 90s anime but also like disney continues to queer code their villains oh Um, yeah 100 million percent that's what i was thinking of more than anime honestly yeah um but it is like i was just watching these and i was just like inova is trans a furry and into pet play (laughs) like that's like (laughs) that's like canon to the show (laughs) the thing you latched on was inova saying um like your wish is dear to my heart, my lord. Um, the thing that was that I thought was really romantic um, was Zagato being like, "Oh, you still want to carry out my uh, 
you know, carry out my orders, even though you know the true wishes of my heart. Yeah. <laughs> I that was just like, oh. Yeah, I also have that written here as a, a moment I latched onto. Um, it's romantic. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is. They, yeah. I, like, honestly, Zagato, I don't, stop being this, like, extremely destructive man to, to Emerald. Just be with your boyfriend, Inova. It's great. So, you know, you're clearly at the top. You know, it's clearly the bottom. It's just like it seems to work here. <laughs> did you? Okay. Did you ever know? Because I knew this guy a couple times. I almost fell into this a little bit. Um, did you ever know that guy who was straight, but had a gay friend who had a crush on him, and would kind of like abuse that? Would kind of be like, oh, this. This guy will, you know, stand up and go get me a Coke, um, even though we're both like yeah. sitting on the couch. Like, I will use the fact that this gay person has a crush on me, <laughs> even though I am straight uh, to my advantage. Um, Zagato definitely has that vibe. <laughs> yeah, fair. Like, so there, there's if- a different version of Zagato who is, I think, more into it. But yeah, I think that's a fair read of what Zagato's doing here. It's kind of just mm-hmm. using Zagato continues to like use the people who who love him in terrible ways. Um I think I think all that is fair. Um I think it's fair to like dismiss this on on one level, but at the same time I do think um I don't think that like the the queerness of like Innova is entirely superficial. Um, I think it actually does have significance like for the character, um, and then that that we can draw out like for the series as well if we want to. Um, but as far as like understanding the motivations of the character and the why, um, I do think that there is like content there. Um, that legitimizes it and, and gives it a look like more meaning um, than maybe just like like a superficial um, a superficial gesturing. And I'm specifically thinking about like all of this conflict around or all this discussion around like him turning into Zagato turning him into a human or uh, and and uh turning him back into a uh you know elemental or whatever um and i'm just going to use him like i think we've grounded the yeah. fact that there's you know we could discuss innova in several different ways um but this like they kind of talk around it this dialogue between zagato and innova i think is at least to me is really fascinating because there are a lot of very long pregnant silences um, and there's a lot of talking around certain like sentiments um, that like it's it's almost like the amount that they talk around something like circumscribes that thing enough to where we can like oh yeah like we can actually point at it and substantiate it um, even though it's not said directly it is like fully circumscribed by how it's talked around. Um, and, like, this whole thing about, oh, I was originally your pet, 
but I asked you to turn me into a human so I could, like, I think it's, he specifically says, like, so I could wield a sword and watch over your minions. Um, but again, like, the implication there is, like, there is there is something about being turned, like, from a pet to a human that creates uh, additional possibilities um, yeah. that I think are strongly implied. Um, and now, like, in turn, he's willing to, like, give up his human form. So, like, foregoing those possibilities, um, like, out of this, like, love and devotion. Um, and it's intriguing to me that both of them, like, seem to be aware of the gravity of this uh, and to actually care about it. Um and with respect to like the um the straight guy who uses his gay friend like I think there's a little bit more in my opinion like I think there's a little bit more mutuality to this relationship um and the show is foregrounding this by the fact that like Inova asks once like turn me back into an elemental um and uh, Zagato says, like, refuses and sends a Farga instead. Um, yeah. And, like, does not want to turn Inova back into this elemental and, like, send him out to fight. He wants him to, like, continue to be human, even though it is, it's less effective, like, for his ends uh, of, like, killing the Magic Knights or whatever. Um, he resists it. Uh, and then, again, like they have to have this very long discussion where Inova like essentially convinces Zagato, like, no, no, do this because I love you and like X, Y, and Z. Um, so he refuses once and then he resists and eventually like capitulates. Um, and at the very least, it, it seems clear that Zagato like A, does not want to do this and B, like there is some shared understanding about the gravity of like, this transformation and a, a, a shared significance for them um, that they both like uh, value. Um, so for whatever that's worth um, in, you know, uh, marginally in defense of um, Zagato, but um, more just like Ray Earth's treatment of uh, queerness, like, I think there's there's more that we can like potentially work with here than just like you know Disney queer coding or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think a thing that's like somewhat related there as well is um I think I may have mentioned this earlier when I like first introduced the here's where the character names come from document in our previous episode. Um, but I just want to like reemphasize here now that you know. Autumn, you've met Enova. People who are listening and watching Rager for the first time have actually met Enova. Um, he is not in the manga. He was created for the show, and I, I'm specifically figuring that here because season two is also not based on the manga, and I think, like, some of what you're drawing out here, Connor, around Enova is also tying into the way that this show is going to continue to like develop the way that it queer codes characters. Um, and again, like the show is already, I think having scenes that clearly 
again that hug between hikaru and umi is just like i don't know how you read it other than like they love each other (laughs) um in episode 14 but you know we've also talked about the scenes of like they're they go from sleeping in separate beds to all sleeping in the same bed um things like that and that stuff is going to continue to get developed in season two and i think we're also going to see the queer coding and also the queer coding of villains continue to be developed as we get into season two in a way where I think it is then significant to think about Inova as a character that is also being created for the show in the same way that like a lot of the characters in season two were created for the show. Um, and like already gesturing towards some of the stuff that's going to be further developed there. Um, but that that's a thing where it's like, we're pointing towards the future. Um, but I, I, there is a tension with Inova. I, I do also still see Zagato as someone who I think, like, unless people have more thoughts on these episodes, we can move on to, to 19 and 20 next. Um, but, like, Zagato, I think, does genuinely love Emerald, but is also destructive towards her. And I think, like, that also kind Like, I, I don't think it is entirely, um, like a contradiction that Zagato is using the gay friend who has a crush on him and also has some like genuine affection for Inova um, because mm. it's just who Zagato is. Like Zagato is someone who I think um, fundamentally uses those who love him, even if he also loves them back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's just yeah. a, a, a terrible man in that way. So I don't know if people have further thoughts on these episodes or um, we can, we can move on, but. I feel like everything I think just keeps turning toward 19 and 20, so... Yeah, it might be good to just get there. Um, So, before we move on, I do want to do a solid for my man Furio, who I have ripped on uh, in the actual podcast and also, like, throughout the notes. Um, (laughs) And I've expressed, like, my hatred of Furio... Um, but I do want to say in episode 17, um, I think there's, there's a noteworthy, uh, like sub narrative that happens for Furio. Um, and watching it again, I thought was actually interesting, um, enough to, to mention. So there's, this ties into a larger discussion about how flashbacks are used in Ray Earth. Um, it's, it's common, um, happens very often. And I think they actually have an interesting function um, specific to Ray Earth where uh, they're often, they seem to like link memory to will. Um, so of, often it's like the flashback immediately precedes a decision, often like, uh, you know, a dramatic turn, essentially acting like an explanation. Like, oh, they're thinking of this and, and that's why they've now decided to do this other thing. Um, but uh, more interestingly, um, for Ray Earth, I think it reflects how, like, we use memory to um, tell ourselves stories about our lives and create, like, uh, narratives to make our lives make sense. Um, and then how those stories, in turn, determine our will and choices. So moving on to Furio, uh, his story here is a really good example where uh, he has this flashback realizing that he is Emerald's brother. Um, and when we first got Furio and Ray Earth, he is this like wandering lone swordsman who has no ties to the world and lives like in solitude and et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, he has this like blow up with Fu over Sarah, um, where he basically runs away in shame, um, distancing himself. Um, but in this moment, he has this flashback remembering that he's Emerald's brother, um, and that triggers like uh, this character movement where he, you know, um, goes back to the knights and like saves them, quote unquote, saves them uh, from Inova. Um, and then like, it's kind of fully enmeshed in like the magic knight squad is, you know, pursuing this like companionship again. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, even though I was very dismissive before, um, the show actually has a kind of interesting, um, narrative arc for Furio where it's this movement from like incapability, uh, to capability, uh, concurrent with his movement from individualism and like solitude uh, to an embrace of companionship and love. Um, and this ties back into um, some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier with the brainwashing and, you know, how this force of like love and friendship, um, and romantic attraction and all of these things um, is driving these characters or giving them this increased capability um, there's this kind of like ethical thrust seemingly happening with this. Um, and, and we also see it with Furia, um, in his character arc. So that, uh, let no one say that I'm unfair to Furio. Um, I wanted to, uh, call out that, uh, that little sub narrative because I think it is, um, actually a decent one. Yeah. I mean, I love Furio. Furio can get it. um but like more seriously i think this is also pointing at something and we'll talk about this more when we actually get into 19 and 20 soon um but i kind of have a a note here as well that um as around 19 and 20 but i'm gonna bring up right now which is i really think like this show is fundamentally about relationships between people like this is what the show is interested in um and I think it even comes down to when we get into 19 and 20, there's like this monarchist view of Sephiro of like, there's the princess Emerald who's kind of, I mean, it's the princess because like fairy tales have a princess, but it is really more of this queen figure um, who rules over Sephiro. But I I have this like part in my notes where I say lol Rob Zachney because when I was thinking about this I was thinking specifically of Rob Zachney talking about the show um, Outlander which is so on a, a waypoint radio he can like complained that the show does not do enough with its interesting political dimensions and is too like interested in the romance aspect and it's literally based on a series of romance novels it is a series like both of books and of a TV show for like women to watch and masturbate to the idea of being fucked by like a, a untamed Scottish man. Like this is why it exists It's what the novels are interested in. <laughs> and also I think like romance and relationships are not inherently inferior to like political dramas. Um, they are also interesting things to explore. Um, and this is a thing that like romance often gets and like a lot of stuff intended like magical girl anime gets derided for this as well as it's like focus on relationships and romance over like quote unquote 
um, like serious topics like politics and things like that. Um, I'm rolling and I, I my think eyes this, at the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this show, like for me, reading the show as being about monarchy and especially as we get into season two, like uh, various like things that could overturn or like move beyond monarchy, like without giving away too much of season two, there's some thematic stuff that's like pushing towards democratization. But I, I think that the show is primarily using this like monarchy versus like, you know, what comes after monarchy, what happens when you dissolve that and you move to a more democratic state. Um, it is using like those political systems, not because it's like inherently interested in exploring the politics of monarchy and democracy and like, what does it mean to be a king? But because it is using monarchy as a metaphor for the expectations put on women, um, and so, like, we'll get into this with Emirad, and we can we can do the synopses next. But, like, I think what's happening with Emirad is really, like, in society, women are often expected to be, like, quote-unquote, the center of the home. They keep everything running. They cook. They clean. They maintain the peace. Um, and they do all of this at the expense of, like, a more liberatory existence, where they are kind of beholden to maintaining a home so that like the men can then do things. And Emerald is kind of put into this like traditional view of womanhood of like, she has to maintain Sephiro so that other people can do things other than maintain Sephiro. Um, and I think the show is actually more interested in that as like a mode of femininity and what happens when you start pushing beyond that. And when you start like exploring other modes of being, um, and then it also figuring into this show very, pointedly concerned with love like i i brought up the whole thing of like the two people who stay with zagato alcione and inova do it out of love and so if the magic knights are kind of representing this like liberatory like here are these like forms of love that can free you from the society they kind of like alcione and um Inova, and then we will get to what's happening with Zagato and Emerald, I think are all pushing towards like, but if the ideology is just love will set you free, that actually doesn't like, love will set you free does not work if what you are in is a abusive relationship in which you love your abuser. So should... I think we can get to episode 19 and 20 now. <laughs> yeah, we should. <laughs> <laughs> I fully set it up. Connor, give us a give us the synopses of 19 and 20. <laughs> okay. So uh, episodes 19 and the, the much anticipated episodes 19 and 20. Um, the Magic Knights fly in their mechs and uh, recount their journey so far. Um, Emerald sends the Magic Knights a message asking them once again to save Sephiro. And then we kind of cut to inside the castle, um, where she's has an exchange with Zagato and heals his wounds. Um, the Magic Knights then confront Zagato, um, who creates his own mech with all the strength of his heart. Um, they battle, and it seems like Zagato is going to win. Um, but then the girls all cast their spells um, in unison and uh, and defeat him. Um, Emerald screams in anguish. Uh, at his death. Um, um, as, girl- as a quick note, both of these episodes in Japan originally aired on the same day. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I was actually yeah. in the, the one, like, you know, bumper that I was watching, it was episode 18. 
Um, and I think the bumper has like, oh, it's a double header, like airing yeah. it Monday at you know seven p.m. Uh, um, blah blah blah. So I didn't mention um, this previously, but they also did this with episodes nine and ten, which are like the two Umi focused episodes um, that we talked about last time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the girls uh, proceed to free Emerald from the inner sanctum of the castle. Um, although ominously, Reirth warns them that they have not faced the true enemy of the Magic Knights yet. Um, they discover that Emerald is a hot lady now. Um, I didn't write the synopsis. Um, and she attacks them in a rage over the death of her lover Zugato, summoning her own mech. Um, she explains... Um, then there's extended dialogue um, between uh, Child, Emerald, uh, and the Magic Knights... Uh, interspersed throughout this kind of final showdown. Um, Child Emerald explains how she fell in love with Zagato, um, despite it being forbidden and imprisoned herself to try to escape her desires. Um, but then, you know, that failed to work as it often does. Um, and Safiro continued to crumble as she turned her mind away from the world and towards Zagato. Um, so then she summoned the magic knights to kill her um, and save Safiro because uh, according to RPG logic, no one from Sephiro uh, can kill the pillar. Um, they battle and ultimately rear Earth, Wyndham, and Celeste uh, form like Voltron and uh, kill, basically, um, they kill Emron. My, my quick girls... interjection here is there's no name for this combined mech, uh, but the fandom usually refers to it as either die Ray Earth or like big Ray Earth. The, the Japanese translation. I think the Japanese name is Die Ray Earth. Um, and American fans sometimes say Combined Ray Earth. Um, okay, yeah. So Combined Ray Earth um, kills Emerald. Um, she basically allows them to, to kill her, I think is an uh, implication. Um, yeah. The girls briefly see Emerald and Zagato united um, in a uh, weird uh, portrait that is just like cut into the, the show. And then they return to Tokyo Tower. Um, it seems like no time has passed in the real world. Um, and Hikaru's friends are surprised to see her like suddenly embracing her two new girlfriends and uh, crying um, in like deep distress. And Hikaru says she wishes to return to Sephiro uh, to take care of it um, after the tragedies that have transpired. And that's it for season one. Okay, so, uh, Magical Girl anime is usually about, like, to me, um, the sorts of, like, ways in which, um, society will, like, take advantage of women and their emotions, um, and force young women into, uh, being mature and being like strong and being able to handle a bunch of bullshit and so um (laughs) the moment that zagato asks why the fuck uh why should emerald have to be the one to pray for um peace in Sephiro? i was like oh shit here we go (laughs) here's the shit (laughs) (laughs) because i knew where this was going i knew like as soon as he said that like i couldn't quite see how it all was gonna play out but i was like okay like we have now established that like there is a system that like presses young women 
into servitude um for their like emotional purity and like the moment that emerald is no longer emotionally pure she transforms into like a sexualized woman (laughs) (laughs) the show is just beating you over the head with like themes at this point um it's really good i i might think zagato is the hero of this show (laughs) i i love zagato because he is right Mm -hmm. like why does a princess alone have to continually pray for peace like he is correct that like this world uh the way that it's constructed is like fundamentally fucked up Mm mm-hmm he is also a person who like the way that he does it. And this, I think he also expresses with yes. there's a line of, I want to make you smile, but it seems all I ever do is make you sad is like, he says like what, you know, it's so like terrible that you have to spend your life locked up in order to like preserve this world and keep this world going. But then what Zagato does is essentially still lock her up or like yes. keep her in this position and is just trying to say like, I'm going to let the world burn. Um, but it's actually not fundamentally like changing her position. It's not fundamentally like fixing her problem. It's just like him seeing that there is a problem that the world relies on her like continued labor and her like continued, you know, all the these things that you brought up about like having to remain emotionally pure, mm-hmm. but he's doing it in this very fundamental way of like, but what I just want is for you to love me. Um, and I'm willing to let the world burn for that rather than mm-hmm. like actually pushing for any sort of different world, um, okay. like different form that this thing could take where like she could have some sort of freedom. It is instead just like, We'll just like burn the whole thing fucking down because I just want you to love me and for me to love you. Um, and actually that like never fixes it. And it, it like continues to just lead towards this conclusion where the magic knights are like forced to basically play into the suicidality of Emerald of just like, I'm trapped Mm -hmm. in this position and the only escape I can see is death. Um, yes, which is just like incredibly bleak. (laughs) And I, you go Connor. Um, I will say, you. I think you both are entirely correct about this, but I think what complicates this further is, there's a couple things that complicate this further. The first one being, um, it's not, Zagato is not only doing this so he can, like, possess Emerald and love her, not only for that, but also so she won't die. Um, yeah, <laughs> because like a lot of, especially with 1920, where rare season one ends up is we're landing on a world that has people living in a world that is beset by constrictions. And as much as like, again, I, I agree. And I, I think you're right that like, Zagato's response to this is like flawed in, in all of these ways and compromised. Mm-hmm. Um, but the world that he and Emerald like exist in does not at this point like seemingly leave any other options. And this is like fleshed out in Emerald's explanation of like 
the moment that I fell in love with Zugato, it was over because my my thoughts started to like go to Zugato. The pillar can't be in love and have like a romantic attraction. Mm-hmm. And I tried to suppress this. We both tried to like not acknowledge this and it didn't work. And at that moment, like the only option that we had was either to let the world like die because I was going to like lose my grip on this role and not perform it or to like for me to die for me to call the magic knights and kill myself essentially mm-hmm. and, and- Z- Zugato like sorry I'll, I'll just I want to just like add one point like the unjustness of this like Emerald is already in prison like and a person like Lafarga there is like I think we see here at the end like Although he is like a quote unquote good guy and devoted, like Lafarga is like her jailer. Um, and Zagato is like her jailer in mm-hmm. her in her like uh you know, existence as like the pillar. Um and I think it's significant that like, you know, we've talked a lot about the importance of love, like moving people. Um Zagato, his role is as like the high priest. Um, so he's the person who is like most tasked in this society with like preserving the pillar and the functionality of the pillar. Um, and I think the show is, is saying like, you know, the two people, Emerald the pillar herself and Zagato, who's the high priest are so moved by love that they like the two people who are most enmeshed in the system uh, like reject it. Um, and the tragedy is that like, yes, then Zagato like uses violence, um, against the Farga. Like he seemingly quote unquote, like kidnaps Emerald. Um, and there's, there's a, a conflict with Emerald, uh, an internal conflict clearly that we'll touch on in, in a minute, I think. Um, but to like, allow her to continue living essentially. Um, and in the process of doing this, like he then does all these horrible actions um, and in, in himself becomes like, you know, um, compromised and problematic and like warped. Um, and uh, I, I, so again, I just want to like throw that out there is, um, you know, I don't think that there is an immediate, by the time that like Emerald is kidnapped or whatever, um, there's not really an option for either one of them, um, besides these two. And mm-hmm. that only seems to emerge later in, in season two. Um, well, and I, like for me, like it's so important here that just like, um, like, Emerald has to, like, literally mother the entire world here. Like, that is, like, what her task is. Um, yeah. And while performing that, she is this, like, pure and childlike person. And as soon as she, um, you know, like, uh, to me, I, I think of, like, the adult version of her, like, that emerges is, like, her true self because like mm-hmm. i don't know how long she's been fucking doing this like um 
but like yeah her true self is like an adult woman who wants things but like the system has literally like you know bent her into this shape that it wants her to be um and i just think it's like really good and like tragic in like a good like you know melodramatic sort of way that um you know zagato's stupid plan to save her one only hurts her um because like as we've seen with how he interacts with all of his minions he is really only capable of like bending people to uh what he wants um and so like even in trying to express love for emerald he just like tries to force her into doing the thing that he wants and two he like his whole thing is i'm gonna shatter the legend of the magic knights but if he had not done if he had not kidnapped her if he had not done x y and z like the magic knights would not have shown up to kill her you know like he was so desperate to like stave off this sort of and it's a cycle like clef implies it's a cycle when he says that um we have to wait for the next pillar to be born so like there is clearly some sort of protocol going on um where the entire world is built around the like suffering of young women um and like the only way to end one young woman's suffering is to like bring three young women from another place and like be like hey murder someone you care about you know so that we can perpetuate this cycle and it's just like good and tragic and interesting in the way that like um you know zagato is trying so desperately to fight against the cycle but he just plays into everything the cycle is supposed to do you know yeah yeah there there's a strong like fatalism to a lot of what happens in 19 and 20 um and like part of the tragedy too is the way that the magic knights just kind of still continue to accept their role they like continue Mm -hmm. to and i i think in some ways like this show is specifically playing into jrpg uh jrpg tropes in a way that again both of you play chrono cross of like here's what is laid out in front of you like this is the the arc of the story and if you like continue to follow that you actually like push towards this thing that is not really like the resolution that is meaningful for the characters themselves or like uh creating meaningful change in the world it is it is literally just like asserting the continuation of like the world as it already exists and they kind of accept it in this way that like when you are playing a jrpg like of course you are going to do the next thing that you're supposed to do um and like the game like will naturally limit you um Mm -hmm. in some way towards like the end goal of like well we have to defeat the final boss like that's that's what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to kill the final boss Mm -hmm. um and so that continues to push where they don't really question like even as zagato is sort of saying to them like this is a world where like why is it set up this way like think about this they still just kill him anyway. They then go on and like are kind of unquestioning like, well, this is the story. This is how it works. We go and we save the princess. Um, yeah. And Ray Earth being like, 
it, it's not over yet. Both Ray Earth the show and Ray Earth the mech. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then them having to, to confront Emerald and then her being like, basically like, I'm either going to kill you here and you don't get to return to your own world or you're going to like kill me. You're, you're going to be the one who does this. Um, oh. And they ultimately like do that to return and very clearly like, once they are back in Tokyo, understand that this was a, a tragedy that they took part in, um, which yeah. again is like figuring what season two is going to be about, which is that they were, they were complicit in like a tragedy and not actually a, a saving of this world. Um, well, and I think that Safiro, um, and I think this is like emblematic. Uh, I, I think this speaks to a larger theme that the show is trying to get at, but I think Safiro has conditioned them in such a short time to like just accept whatever is in front of them because they don't want to kill emerald they um they don't want to do that but they're so like they've been led by the nose so much by people like clef like they what's the first thing that happens is they turn to clef and clef is like there's definitely no alternatives don't even ask about it um yeah yeah suddenly you see this like darker face of of everything and and they haven't you know we haven't seen them in these episodes even have to look for alternative solutions they have just been told like you know show the strength of your heart show your commitment to doing what you are told to do um and then you will get more magic powers um and so like and the moment where now suddenly they want to find some alternative solutions like they haven't really been like taught that and they just have nothing to do other than like you know do this they discover that thing. there that there aren't any yeah yeah, yeah. well and uh, it, it also like i brought this up previously but i think there's also this figuring of like Throughout so much of the like, Sephiro is a world of will. It's like a world where the strength of heart is what matters most, and so within that like framework, it is easy to then believe that like the power of love is the thing that will get you through. Um, like I I gestured towards this earlier, but I think it like it again is tying in everything we're saying here, and is like very I think key to what's also happening in these moments, um, and. So it is this thing where like, yes, the power of love did like result in better outcomes for people like Caldina and Ascot um, in particular, I think are like the ones where this is felt the strongest. Um, But like that in and of itself, just like the power of loving other people. I think the show is very clearly taking a stance on like that is not necessarily enough and it, it is doing it through like Zagato and Emerald is the most like heavily um abusive like that we see within the show and the way that they are defeated is specifically through this like we've been talking about red green and blue which of course are the three wavelengths of eye, of light that the eye like the human eyes see and if you combine RGB like through say digital images or something like that like this is what you know um pixels on a screen used to create white this is what the tv that is being used to like 
people watching Ray Earth is it's shooting red, green, and blue light to create different colors. And if you shoot all of them at the same time in the same intensity, you get white. And so the girls combine their love, like they all... They combine to form Ray Earth. They also then cast the spell together that like creates white. And so like this strength of love is able to defeat the like the darkness, the black that's figured by these other characters, um, including then like Emerald also being figured in in white to like the final destruction is her, um, but is like been corrupted to some degree with this like darkness. Um, and so that I think it is also continuing to like establish like, okay, we have all these different colors. And then if you do like white and, and black as like these pure forms of um, either the full presence of color or the full absence and those being like the strongest intensities. Um, and then white is able to defeat black in the end, but it is again, just like this pitting of like love against each other in this way that like is destructive rather than creating any sort of new possibility. Um, Mm -hmm. and I like, I'm like really focusing in on this like weird reading of color here, but I, I think it is significant that they are RGB (laughs) red, green, blue. Um, and that it, this show is also so concerned with like romance and love and in this ending of season one really clearly showing that like even incredibly strong love is not enough to solve the problem um that there needs to be like something beyond love which is one of the reasons why the show ended up really resonating for me as like someone who has survived abusive relationships because love did not get me through that or like make it better um like loving that person did not help and being heartbroken when she broke up with me, even though that was the kindest thing that she actually ever did to me. Um, like <laughs> is a thing that I think it, it, I, I am seeing to some degree play out here. Um, and it's something that I think season two is very concerned of, of, of like this world is not going to change from love alone. Like we have to like further explore love and what it means to love other people. Um, in order to like reach some sort of greater conclusion. Um, so I, I kind of went on on like a spiraling tangent there, but (laughs) people may have thoughts. I, um, I'll I'll just, so I will say, you know, your reading of the color, I I think is like 100% spot on, but first I'll say like, isn't there a dark irony in, if we're reading the colors this way, as like, and, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but this is just for the sake of trying to like, you know, uh, articulate this. Like, if there is this triumphalist aspect of like, oh, here's this, the Magic Knights represent one kind of love, um, which is, you know, potentially like this, um, th- this thing that we're affirming and this thing that is ethical. Um, versus like what Zagato and Emrod represent, which is bad because it's abusive. That's like, you know, the, the kind of love that's not enough. Um, and the Magic Knights like triumph over this and this is kind of affirming it, you know, it, what they represent. Um, but to what end, right? Yeah. Um, to the end that they fucking kill Zagato and Emrod, who like ultimately, and, and yes, there are, many things that transpired that make us a god every bad person, but who ultimately were set on this path by something that like wasn't a crime at all, um, or wasn't like wrong at all. Um, and the other thing 
is that that I'd add here is like I don't think it's just the fact that the nature of Emrod and Zagata's relationship is like can be read as abusive that makes it problematic for this world. It is that Emerod cannot have feelings for anyone, or she can't have yeah. romantic sexual feelings for anyone because she's the pillar. Like abusive or not, she just yeah. the world will not allow her to to do this thing. I um, think my read and like of of what's happening in the show as well is that it is it is not that the love is wrong because it is abusive, but that like what occurs is abusive because this world figures any sort of love for her to have like this to be like something bad. And so then it is like difficult for her to then access anything other than like this more terrible outcome. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. It is, it is like any kind of love is bad within this world. And so it will like push towards in the way that like, extremely traditional gender roles can also like also push towards abuse becomes more highly figured within that because it is like setting the these structures on repressive those relationships structures. that yeah are repressive that like that um enable and like emphasize those forms rather than like something that can can actually be more like what the magic knights have as this like somewhat more <laughs> you know we keep talking about it as a queer thing um and so i think there is like a certain amount in that but then i i also like i agree with you that i think part of what the show is doing is that like okay so they seem to be this more liberal liberatory form of love and it's represented as like coming together to form white instead of the the darkness of black and it's like light overcoming darkness um but the the show is very intentionally i think setting up that like oh actually this like good versus evil light versus darkness conception of the world and of what is happening is actually not like a meaningful or um like does not actually capture like light does not yeah. actually triumph over darkness in like the sense of this is this is a good outcome it's um, not like dualistic and that, yeah and the like figuring of it as a dualistic thing of like this is good triumphing over evil this is light triumphing over darkness um buying into that is what like creates this tragedy um, yeah and and, and so like they like, also need to break from that even as they are still representing in their lightness like something that could be more liberatory um it's not being like employed correctly or it is, it is not like um it is not actually like reaching any sort of potential it's just still figuring into like the way that these structures work in a way that like very intentionally i think things like love can be used to then perpetuate like harmful systems, <laughs> which I think is yeah. a, a thing that the show is very concerned with. And like, moreover, this like dualistic conception is a core part of the like narrative that the girls and us as the viewers um, are indoctrinated into um, that like throughout Ray Earth, and we talked before about how like the style of the series, like it kind of it it coerces you and it shows the way that the girls are like indoctrinated and eventually identify fully with this. Um but there are so like it's the ease with which they accept like, oh, Zagato is the evil and 
Like, we just need to defeat Zagato. And once we've done that, then, like, you know, everything will, will be okay again. Um, you know, it blinds them to these, like, to all, all of these nuances that, that are occurring. Um, and that's why I think, like, the end of season one, watching it again, I was actually shocked by how dark and ironic it is. Um, because it just, like, subverts it after like showing you how the girls are like indoctrinated into this um how they like accept this imposed narrative and this imposed identity um to the point where they reach the scene that you that you highlighted um where they've killed zagato zagato has literally just told them like all of this fucked up shit and they're just like completely ignore it and they're like celebrating that they've defeats Zagato and they're going to save the princess. Um, it's a really like uh, disturbing scene where um, they're able to just like a- avoid this reality. Um, and I think this is a, a subtle like narrative uh, touch that the series does. Um, it doesn't really draw attention to like how disturbing and ironic this is like pointedly. Um, but when you consider it like we're doing, like you, you realize, oh, this is actually, <laughs> they've like, this represents like the complete subsumption of their identities into this like magic night narrative that the world has just handed them. And actually, like, as it turns out, this world is like really fucked up and like constraining and won't let like, this is what this world does, at least as we see it now. Like, it won't let people uh, be themselves. Um, it there is a hierarchy of of wills, and like no, you can't be yourself in this world. You have to be what the world what this world wants you to be. And like coming up against this in this extremely traumatic way of like, oh wait, yeah, we're actually the tools of like murder, uh, um, like murdering this person that we thought we were saving um, is like probably one of the darkest possible like uh twists um that the show could do to like subvert and just like shatter this entire veneer and then it just like ends on that um and it it has like this um these like almost like tonal flare-ups of like oh yeah we're still doing like a magical girl anime that's like ostensibly for kids. Um, so we're trying to throw out these constellations like Zagato's peacefulness when he's dying. Um, and then Emerald's like, Oh no, my final wish is truly for you to like kill me. Um, no, this, this is what I want. Like really. Um, and then like the portrait of them, um, seemingly like happy together. Um, all these are like, oh, well, this is kind of like softening the blow. Um, but again, like, it's just this incredibly dark irony, uh, because this portrait we get, all it does is just emphasize, like, it's static. It's a portrait. Like, there's no life in it because they're fucking dead. <laughs> like, their lives are over and, uh, they're just like a memory, an artifact now. So, uh, yeah, like, I was really, um, intrigued by like watching this again it it hit me a lot harder than 
the first time I watched it. Um, and I think it's just because like we've been tracking this, um, this tension and conflict like throughout the series. And now it just kind of like um, finally surfaces in this huge way um, in, in a, a really unexpected way. Yeah. I think the other, like, I don't know if people have final thoughts. I think we're, we're starting to get to the end, but one thing that um, also just like pointing towards season two here. Um, I think when I was joking at least at some point about which of us is which character. Um, I said like, well, you know, obviously I'm Hikaru because Hikaru is the protagonist and I'm the protagonist of ghost divers. Um, (laughs) but like within season one, Hikaru is often like, I I think it is still clear to see her as often the main character, but they, she does share the spotlight a lot with Umi and Fu. Um, and I think that like, that changes when we get to season two. And I think it changes in a way that um, also makes sense for what we've seen develop here, which is that like this really gets figured here at the end where she is in many ways bought into like, Oh, I'm going to become a magic knight. And uh, you know, Umi and Fu seem a little bit more just like, okay, we're going to do this so that we can like go back to the real world. Whereas Hikaru is like, very invested in like i want to save people uh i i love all going to be a magic knight yeah i'm going to be a magic knight and like is driven i think often by this like love affection or care for like basically everyone that she meets um like this continues to be the tension with her is like oh i love this like monster because i think it's like hikari um and things like that and like has to continue to confront like the limits of that um, and I, so I think Hikaru is often figured here as the one who's the most driven by like, I have this loving care for the people around me. Um, and so is the one in this ending who like most has to confront and in this moment is most like disbelieving of the limits of that love to actually like fix the problem. Um, yeah. you know, and, she and continues uncritical and uncritical love is one thing yeah. bad. Yeah, and so she, like, continues to think, like, well, like, you know, this can't be, like, Princess Emerald, like, and all of the these points. Mm-hmm. Like, she's so she's so bought into it, and she's so bought into, like, why would she be doing anything bad because she's, like, doing all of this out of love? Um, and it's, like, really, I think the one who, like, has the hardest difficulty until the very end of, like, really regretting what she did. Um, and, again, like, that regret and that, like having to confront the limits of this like uncritical love that she has for, for everybody is going to become like the core tension of season two. So I don't know if we have final thoughts here or otherwise we can, we can wrap this up a shorter episode. <laughs> um, Automel, I'll let you take a crack at it. If you have anything. No, I think I hit everything that I had. Um, I will say just to add like another, cause I think it's, uh, it's important to, to put this out here as like a reading of, uh, season one that I think is legitimate. And I think, um, you know, it could be complicated, but, uh, is like, it is, is very much at play. Um, Another way that the series is like 
at least in season one, you know, it, it plays with this like free will, free will versus determination constantly. Um, it holds them both at the same time, like paradoxically. Um, and then here, like, you know, in the final episodes, we just like thud against the hard wall of like determinism. And there is an aspect of this where it's like, um, throughout the final few episodes, uh, it, there is a focus on Emerald, like her role as a pillar and her power, what that means. Um, and, you know, it, it's continually emphasized that like Sephiro is a mirror of the princess's heart. Like the fabric of reality uh, in Sephiro is determined by her will. Um, so there's another like tragic thrust to this story, which is that Zagato and the Magic Knights are both like carrying out Emerald's like quote unquote wishes. Um, she is like internally divided between her love for Zagato and wanting to like be with Zagato, um, and then also like her duty as the pillar um, and this in, like internalized repression that she has. Um, so you can see like all of the uh the entire like destiny and all the actions um or the narratives of like Zagato and the magic knights and the most extreme deterministic reading that we can do which i think is a fair and legitimate reading um the entire like destiny all the events of the narrative um are like orchestrated um or set off in accordance with like emerald's wishes um and like this internal division that um, her circumstances, like the repression of the world and her role, um, the internal division that it creates in her um, is itself like giving rise to the disintegration of the world um, as reflected through like, you know, her power and um, how her power manifests like that inner division. But again, like something to potentially keep in mind for season two um, when we talk about um, the Sephiro itself, like being a fundamentally unstable uh, construction that like within its own construction also like gives rise to its destruction um, by virtue of the very, the very same elements um, that it relies on. So uh, yeah, that is my, um, I, that is my like darkest reading uh, for season one, and uh, it. I think this all um, is developed and um, continues to be, to be developed in intriguing ways um, as we go through season two as well. So, uh, speaking of season two, um, I I guess I'll wrap this up unless anyone wants to interrupt me. Feel free to interrupt me. Um, our next episode, we will be discussing episodes 21 through 30 of Magic Knight Ray Earth. So like the first third of season two. Um, if you have any questions, you can write into ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Uh, thank you to the Export Audio Network for hosting us. You can go to exportaud.io to see lots of podcasts on the network, um, including, I don't, have we mentioned this so far on 
I forget if we mentioned it in the previous episode or not. Um, I'm sure I'll mention it in the Ava question bucket. So people have heard this already, but autumn, you and I started a movie podcast. Uh, we, we did mention stairwells. this last time okay. because, um, I was like, Oh, it doesn't have a public feed yet. And you're like, it's going to have a public feed by the time this episode comes up. <laughs> That's true. Yes, it will have a public feed. Um, it does have a public feed as of when we were recording this, in fact. Yeah, so uh, export odd.io slash ornate stairwells um, is where you can go to to get the public feed. Or, honestly, you should just go to export odd.io, give a dollar to the network or more. Um, I mean, by the time that this episode comes out, y'all will be doing your Godzilla podcast. So do $5. Listen to the Godzilla podcast. Yeah. Um, Hit that bell. Like and subscribe. Yeah. And and also listen to Ornate Stairwells when it comes out so that uh, you know what the next episode is going to be without having to check the spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, do, do we want to promo anything else here? Otherwise, we can just get to see Twitter accounts. No, you kind of hit all my plugs for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so you can follow the podcast at Ghost Divers Pod. You can follow me at Fox Mom Nia. Where can people follow you, Connor? I mean, they know already, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, um, you can follow me the... at. Yeah, it's no, 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 everybody ahead. Everybody follows this Twitter account. Um, it's one of the most popular Twitter <laughs> accounts on Twitter. Uh, everyone loves the good tweets. Um, it's really just like huge just huge um, yeah but if you're new to twitter you can find me at rabelais r-a-b-b-l-e-a-i-s uh where can people follow you autumn you can follow me on twitter at autumnal underscore coffee um and you can also follow at garfred aloud to watch me read garfield aloud into a camera um who is it today friends uh umi Connor. It's uh did I already say Bulbasaur? You did. Oh, yeah. Um Diglett. <laughs> um I'm gonna say Makana. I recognize the outline anyway. Uh let's see. <laughs> it's Foo! None of us were right once again. <laughs> Just remind me of the fucking vine. <laughs> Just reminding me of the vine where it's like, it's Pikachu! <laughs> Fuck! That doesn't make any sense if you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's fine. I feel nope. like a lot of people have, have no seen idea. that vine. But, oh my god, Connor, what the fuck? I have absolutely um, no idea. Let's Sorry. just... I'm doing it live. I'm, Who's I'm that send, Pikachu? I'm gonna send vine. you a vine. I'm gonna fucking post a vine in the chat, like a fucking jackass uh, there you go I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting this this content it's there oh okay let me check I just watched it it always makes me laugh <laughs> he's so upset oh I see <laughs> oh, oh yeah anyway <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Bye. Bye. See you next time, everybody.
Let's do a time dot is clap. Sure. All right. All right. All right. All right. Ah, uh, damn it! I accidentally quitted nothing on A. Can I um, very briefly now that the episode is over, just like talk about something related to Ray Earth, but not related to Ray Earth? Yeah. Do sure. you want to clap first? Yeah. Let's clap first. Okay. Um. Twelve thirty. Jesus. <laughs> I was not ready for that. We might want to do another. Okay. Wow. Aren't you the one who likes... No, you like five. That's right. I, I should have yeah. known. That's why you weren't ready. Okay. We're going to go with 55. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 55? It's two fives. I thought you would wait. want that. <laughs> it's almost there. Um. I still feel like I fucked it up, but whatever. I'll figure it out. The thing that I just wait wanted for thirty five fifty five. No. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> the thing I was gonna say just very quickly was just that um, and I didn't want to put this in the episode proper because I didn't want to have you make you have to do like a spoiler warning anywhere. But I guess if you want to leave this in the recording, you can. Um. Was I was delighted in episode nineteen to find out that uh. Magic Knight Ray Earth and Monica 3 Rebellion have the same story. <laughs> um, oh, do they? Uh, yeah, because the 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 first two Monica movies are just recaps of the show, so they're not really worth watching. But the third one, um, there is uh, infamously a episode of Export Audio where Nora and I watched the third Monica movie and kind of started a fight within our friend group because we didn't like it. Um, oh shit! And Emma and Jackson um, really love Monica three um, because essentially what it is about is that at the end of Monica, you know, um, Monica sacrifices herself um, to save all the little girls throughout time and history and space and blah blah blah. And in Rebellion. Um, Homura says, fuck that. And basically, like, does everything she can to free Monica from this, like, terrible fate. Um, because from, like, Monica her astral to, consciousness thing. Yeah. And Monica, like, has to sacrifice herself. And Homura decides, it, it, do, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Uh, sure, you saved, like, millions of other girls from sacrificing themselves. But it's not fair that this one girl still has to sacrifice herself just to save everybody else. So, uh, and just like lets the world burn because she's in love with Monica. Um, and so it was just a delight to me to find out that, like, <laughs> even, literally... even, even that part of Monica was just ripping off older magical girl anime. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> There's Monica does a lot. I, I was actually thinking about this watching through the earth. Um, I mean, there's a lot of Rare Earth that, like, re- resurfaces in a way in Monica. Specifically, like, hey, what if being a magical girl was actually, like, evil or bad? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, like, this is what Sailor Moon Bazinga. is also about. Yeah. Oh, see, I, I'm not as familiar with Sailor Moon. Um, so, I really... Sailor Moon is a really remarkable show to me in that, like... It, it to me does all the sort of thematic work that uh Monica does except it's just one it decompresses it over 200 episodes and and two does it in the wrapper of like the most beautiful pastel kids show you've ever seen in your entire life um hmm. 
and so I I just have a lot of respect for the things that Sailor Moon does, and I love um um Monica, I love Madoka a lot. I love Madoka a lot. Um, but the fandom who act like it's unique are annoying. I just love Madoka because like it does the, it does the genre very stylishly, you know, and in yeah. a very compressed time frame. Yeah, I like. I think in our intro episode, I went on a completely incoherent, stupid like rant about how I don't like Madoka. Uh, well, how I'm just like lukewarm on it. Um, we all talk trash about Monica in the intro episode. I I edited it recently. We are all just talking trash about Monica to varying yeah, degrees. I, I really want to stress. I really deeply Monica is one of my favorite shows. It's just that fans of Monica can all go die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, I find myself th- throughout this entire conversation. I'm just sitting here being like, um, dear listeners who uh, half watched Utena. Uh, and we are doing it next, so if you haven't, well, what, what? welcome to the club of Connor has not watched any Utna, and um, Autumn, you have not finished Utna. I don't know how far you I... made it, but okay. I mean, this also happened. This is Magical Girl anime. This yes. is why, yes. like, I this joke is... about, like, Madoka is fine, but also none of it is, like, particularly new, really. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. I will defend myself on the um, Utena not watching thing because I have tried three times to watch it with other people and all three times the other person has like either not come through for me or in one instance just been like we just don't have good schedules where it's been hard to like hang out and watch the show much. Um but like the other two were just people really like letting me down. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not taking any responsibility for the fact that I haven't watched Utena. I've tried. Yeah. Fair well, if you want to watch Utena along with a podcast, I need um, to talk to that one. <laughs> I need to talk to that third person and be like, Hey, are you fine? If I just watch Utena on my own, because we can never hardly be in, in a call at the same time, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It just doesn't yeah. work out very often. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I, maybe we've moved past it, but with Madoka, I think, Madoka is, like, is cool in a lot of ways, but I find it, like, I think I find myself in the position that um, I I expect a lot of people are, like, with Ava, um, except, like, I'm on the other side of the coin now, where it's, like, yeah, the fandom who, like, has certain opinions about it is just, like, really annoying, and it makes me, like, focus in on, like, oh, yeah, I just, I don't like how it just is, like, built around this gotcha of, like, oh, yeah, what if, like, being a magical girl was, like, actually horrible? Like, Bazinga, mm-hmm. um, and that is, like, there's so much to do about that and i'm just like yeah it's not really <laughs> like super interesting um fans are just like, very good at misreading uh things i feel like yeah and and i think that's like i mean 
that's not like a bad it's not like bad that Madoka does that, but it just feels like so when you add in like the and I, I realize I'm like I'm undermining myself because I'm like so much the person who's just like, no, no, ignore the fan base. Um, I'm admitting that like this has happened to me with Madoka where like there's one person in particular who like really informed before I saw it who made me think this way. And then I was just like, uh, I, I'm just disappointed because it was so hyped up and I'm like, I don't know. My, my view on it is stilted. But I, I do think yeah. it's like a good show, to be fair. Um, yeah, I hit record. All right. Um, now recording. Now recording. Oh yeah, I should I should get in Craig. That's right. You get Craig in here, and then I have a very funny story to tell you. Okay. Um, I like never use Craig ever, but. It's just there in case, like we record for three She's hours. Here, I don't want, talk about it. I don't want someone to lose. Like, oh no, I had an audio issue. Um, right. And then just be like, well, that was like three to four hours of us talking. This is gone now. Um, yeah. Okay. So, but it's not like anybody ever forgot to hit record for an entire recording. No, <laughs> that would be dumb. Happened before. That'd be fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the person who did it would be really stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They probably wouldn't like. They probably wouldn't uh, be. I would just be continue podcasting with with the person who it happened to. (laughs) I would just stop like recording the podcast with that person, and then like maybe like a year later, be like, actually, let's try this again, (laughs) but please record this time. Okay, hypothetic. It's entirely hypothetical, of course. (laughs) Very funny work story today. This like. Elderly lady, like I would guess 75-ish, came in, orders her cappuccino. Um, I ring her out. As I'm running her card, she asks me, What's your what's your pin mean? And I, I looked and I double checked. I was like, Oh, that's my pronoun pin. So when people refer to me, they say like they and them. Um, and she's like, You go. Good for you. Those are mine too. And then she walks away. <laughs> just so taken with this old lady just suddenly deciding that she had the pronouns too for, just to be supportive of me that's wild that's great anyway um i don't care when i do the bit that i forgot to do last episode um we could do it now or we could do it after we clap um, uh, I'm gonna finish up my dinner, so do it whenever you feel is appropriate. Okay. Um, I mean, we could just kind of like shoot the shit while you finish your dinner if you want to do that. Whatever works. I mean, gonna... my little my little bit is fairly short, but it is everyone is involved with it. Okay. Well, then we should just shoot the shit. Okay. Um. <laughs> I'm gonna be bad at that because yeah, so, I'm chewing. Uh, how about how about them seventy sixers? Don't fucking talk to me about the Sixers. Don't. I don't. I'm so embarrassed of liking this team right now. <laughs> I fucking even though they won. I yes, even though they won, uh, because Game Five was such an embarrassing fucking loss. I'm ashamed of this team right now. Uh, 
I'm just, God. We should be, this game should have been over in five, or this series should have been over in five, and we forced a game seven. So we were down 3-2, and we forced, I fucking hate this team right now. I'm so mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seems like they have some uh, some pretty serious uh, issues with the construction of their team. Um, we wouldn't if Ben Simmons knew how to put a basketball in a fucking hoop. Uh, like yeah, well there you go. there you go. <laughs> Maybe like a top ten player in the league if he could shoot. Unfortunately, he cannot. Yeah. Um, I don't even need him to be yeah. good at it. I just need him to do it. I ugh, fucking hate this team yeah. right now. <laughs> like yeah, you know our offense can't work unless this guy's playing. But like he can't shoot free throws, so yeah, the other team is just gonna like foul him and then we lose. A, a, <laughs> or we take him off the court and we lose. A worse free throw shooter than fucking Shaq. Like it's He needs to do um the underhanded thing. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> I I would love him to try anything other than what he's doing, so sure. There's a whole thing about like I, I'm not like an expert on basketball, but I've I once read that um I can't remember the guy who like did it. Who was famous for doing it, but he shot like ninety percent or something. I knew then, I know who you're talking about. I can't think of his name either. It's like Rick Barry. Is that a guy? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah. Um and uh so everyone says that like the the theory is that um it is like objectively the most efficient way of shooting, like in terms of like body mechanics and then like proven accuracy. But just like NBA players just refuse to do it because it looks so stupid. They like <laughs> refuse to be seen stupid. doing it. Yeah, even though it's like definitely the most efficient way of <laughs> of shooting free throws. Um, <laughs> it's just one of those weird things in in sports where it's like because so much of professional sports now is like objectively grounded. Like, yeah, we do this for like because it is like probabilistically proven to be the best approach. But that's one of those like relics or weird things where it's just like masculinity. Yeah, fuck no. Yeah, fuck no, we're not gonna do this. I also would refuse to do that if I were an NBA player. I'm on fucking TV. You can't get me to do that shit. <laughs> yeah, it really is like as much as as much as you can say it's like a masculinity thing, it, it really is just so silly. Like it's just embarrassing as a professional. Like I don't care who you are. It, it would be really odd to, to like, have them doing that all the time. Um. Anyway, yeah, I'm done Simmons eating. Do if that. you want to do your bit, Nia. Um. I can't believe that Ghost Divers is hot singles now. <laughs> You're fucking welcome. I I think I'm gonna try. Rex and I are having a little difficulty scheduling anything other than hot singles, but I really need to do like a three-hour sports chat with them right like as soon as we possibly can so we're gonna figure that out soon <laughs> that sounds fantastic all right uh let, let, let's record the thing that i forgot to do last time because i was like a combination of tired and giddy i think um, <laughs> shall we do time.is clap and then record an actual episode no. Especially since we're starting yeah. relatively let's okay. uh we can keep talking about Utena. Um, <laughs> it's not like we're going to be doing it anytime soon in Ghost Divers. So. 
okay. What's the number that you all like again? It's like zero. Um, five. Okay. Um, thirty-five. This is so long. <laughs> I'm making you wait for it. I thought you were gonna just pick like thirty-one just to be a dick. No, no, no. I gotta, I gotta just switch it up a little bit. Yeah. I'm already predictable enough, so you know, I gotta try sometimes. Um, yeah, I think also I think we like, landed on autumn likes zero and five, and I hate zero, so five is the only good one. <laughs> right, right. There's a lot of options to choose from there. Uh-huh. Anyway, shall we start a podcast? Okay. Or does anyone have any any more goofs? No, I'm good. I'm goof free. I don't think so. I'm clean. Okay. What are you drinking, if anything? Um. So I I had some whiskey, and now I'm just having a raspberry sour. Nice. I'm drinking uh, sour beer. Good old Cincinnati beer. I actually, it is a Kolsch. Yeah, it's a Kolsch. You know a lot more about alcohol than I do, so make of that what you will. Um, Kolsch is good. It's like a... I always kind of associate it with like... Um... Oktoberfest. Oh yeah. But yeah, I just <laughs> I don't think I that's very... anything specific to Oktoberfest. I think it's just that like if it's Oktoberfest, you're going to be drinking a lot of German beer in particular. Hmm. Um Yeah, I I have a very narrow field of beer preferences as I think you probably remember. Um it doesn't leave me with much room. So, uh, but Cincinnati, one of the things that is actually unique about it is it has just like a ridiculous uh, preponderance of craft, like brewers um, or craft breweries, and um, it's it's regarded as being like I mean apparently uh, it's a very good like region for craft beer. Um, with just like a, again, like a ridiculous amount of companies putting out, um, all kinds of different, um, stuff. So, but of course, like I have no interest in any of that. Um, so when I was buying beer for, um, it was actually last Friday cause you know, we were gonna, I was preparing for Saturday. Um, and I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'll just get a, uh. I'll just get some random shit, but I'm going to go for the blandest thing they have. Um, and this looked, this looked like fit the bill. So far, yeah, it's uh, nice and bland. Yeah, it is. I'm like actually not. 
I know, like, if someone tells me something is a Kolsch, I know what it is in terms of, like, what I'm expecting. But I actually, like, don't know how you would classify it broadly within beer. I'm not that much of, like, a beer person, to mm. you fully know that. Because um, it, it's, like, similar to a lager, but it's a little bit more complex. Um, so you can yeah. just, like, I'm on the Wikipedia page for it right now. Um and I'm now realizing that the overlap between like people who edit and moderate Wikipedia and people who like who like craft beer is probably just immense. Um yeah. because there's like way too detailed I mean this is like absurdly uh detailed. Hello. Hi. Bonjour. Um, <sighs> we were just discussing uh, my uh, my preference for bland beers. <laughs> I, I am not much of a beer drinker light. at all. So, yeah, I don't I don't drink uh, super often at all. But when I do, it's Coors Light or PBR. Am I? Am I, like, misremembering something? I feel like it came up in a podcast once that Nora either does like beer or used to know a lot about beer and like beer. Uh, yeah, Nora's a big beer person. I am not. Okay. Um, I was like, I feel like that came up at some point. I used to be a bigger beer person, um, and I still do drink like a beer sometimes for the podcast, but I just can't drink a lot of it because I'm allergic to hops. Um, mm. So I've definitely moved more towards cocktails because um, if I have like more than one beer, I'm often going to like, I was hung over after I drank a bunch of Kieran Ichiban and just like a very, I'm allergic to hops and I shouldn't have done that for Evangelion. Um, <laughs> oh but, yeah. Yeah. That's a double whammy right there. Yeah. We recorded a podcast about uh, even jelly and then you also uh consumed a lot of stuff you're allergic to yeah it's a double like, dose of toxicity the way that i found out that i was allergic to hops is so i had a friend who was really 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 big into ipas um and he gave me this bottle of this like ipa he loved that was so hoppy that they actually push a hop cone down into every single bottle so there's like is a hop cone just in the bottle and I drank like that and that was it. And I've never been big on IPAs, um, but I was just like, this is like my friend's favorite beer and he's like giving it to me because it's his favorite beer. I'm going to drink it. It's the only thing I drank that night. And I woke up with just like a complete splitting headache. Like this is terrible. I feel so hungover. Um, and then I looked into like, so hop allergies. <laughs> um what what yeah, are symptoms? Oh, cool! <laughs> Just like worst my like worst migraine hangover ever. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. My um, fuck IPAs. They're really disgusting. I know. I'm I, saying this is someone who's like allergic to hops, but still. <laughs> we're gonna if this podcast gets into the wrong hands, we're gonna be assassinated. Uh, um, but yeah, fuck IPAs. Oh, um, I'm going to I'm going to tell something real quick, Connor, that uh, you, especially as someone who also went to the math program at um, University of Chicago, might really appreciate, yeah, which I is that math. <laughs> mathematics. <laughs> yeah, the Master of Arts program in the humanities math. Um, 
everybody loves to mishear it as math and then we all joke about it anyway um i don't know if they're still doing this when you went through that program but i know that there was like every friday the university hosted a happy hour that just had like yep. free beer um oh, yeah. As just we, like a we, way to, we had charcuterie boards as well. Yeah, so. yeah, we had okay. that too. But like okay. beer was the reason that most people went. Um, okay. There was free food as well, which is a as a grad student is still important. But um, most people were mostly there just to get drunk and like try to cope with what that program was. <laughs> um, and there was one guy who just like was really insistent that the IPA was like the platonic ideal of beer it was like what what beer is meant to be it is like the true form of beer it is what like all beer if you distill all beer it becomes ipa and i was just like this is like factually inaccurate the reason why it has so many fucking hops in it is to like preserve it incredibly well so they can ship it across the ocean to india that's why it's called an indian pale or india pale ale um it was like literally they're trying to get the beer to survive lengthy ocean journeys and so they're putting as much fucking hops as they can into it um and it just was not a style that existed before then but beer existed for a really fucking long time and for a long time if you talked about beer you would be like drinking a Groot which like hardly has any hops in it it's mostly like coriander and like citrus peel um so like yes there needs to be some sort of preservative in it but this amount of preservative and the preservative being specifically hops is just like no this is not the platonic ideal of beer shut the fuck up <laughs> It's a bad yeah, we, I, Fuck yeah, I had a, You know what's funny is I had a guy who said the exact same thing in my program. It must just be. Yeah, like I'm they, unsurprised. There's one in every year of math. There's <laughs> yeah. a person who, who feels that way. The University of Chicago attracts these kinds of people. Who like pontificates um, at social hour about the platonic ideal of beer. And the platonic ideal of beer, of course, being an IPA because it's the most just like, I am Dumb. a craft beer man. <laughs> beer. Yeah. Yeah, look at me, like, drinking something unpalatable, like, green gritting my teeth. Yeah, um, yeah I, we're, like, well <laughs> off into, you know, flashback land right now. But um, the moment, like, the moment my beer drinking life really changed was where I started to hate IPAs. Um, when I first started drinking, I was an undergrad, and I went to, like, before I went to University of Florida, I went to a small school in Kentucky in a dry county. Um, so there was like no alcohol. Um, and the one, so I was a freshman, so I was like 18, 19. And we had an older friend who was like, had taken some years off and come back to school. And he was like 25. Um, and he was always like that guy who had acquired the alcohol. But he was like very big on craft beer. I mean, he was one of these guys that we were talking about. Um and since he was like the alcohol acquirer, he took it upon himself to like raise our tastes with his alcohol selection. So he would always just like go and get what he thought was interesting or what he liked, which like invariably always was some absolutely disgusting like tar. Um, and I had never had, I never drank before that. So I just went from like zero to drinking like these heavy ass IPAs. Um, and that was how my alcohol drinking life began. Um, and so I like got used to it, but then there was one particular moment where, um, we were hanging out on a weekend and what we thought was a cool thing to do. Um, 
because masculinity was uh we wanted to sit outside at a table and like chat while uh smoking cigars and drinking ipas um and i smoked like an entire like very strong cigar and then also had um i can't remember what the name of the thing was i wish i did but it was essentially like a syrup um it was so like disgusting and thick and hoppy it was like a syrup um and he got these like very large bottles um so we're just sitting there for hours like smoking cigars and drinking this this slop um (laughs) and i i got so sick i like went and i vomited for like like 10 minutes at least and my vomit was just like pitch black and that moment just imprinted on me so hard like ever since then i don't think i've had an ipa like since that moment um and i just like started drinking Coors Light, and that that was it um i don't see any point in like if i yeah it's it's so fucking dumb Um, (laughs) this is why i can't eat nutter butters <laughs> I mean, specifically, it's the first time that I got the flu as a kid. Um, it was like the thing yeah. that I ate right before I vomited all over the like elementary school cafeteria that was also the gymnasium was a nutter butter, and I just like the smell of nutter butters to this day still make me queasy. Um. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, this is just. I'm just going to keep going with this. Um, I have this with strawberry milkshakes because one time, um, I think it was before either like the summer after I finished math or the summer before I went, um, I was staying at home, you know, like, oh, I just graduated undergrad and I'm going to stay home for a few months before I moved to Chicago type of thing. Um, and I was, I had gotten like really ill, um, this is a longer story, but basically like because I was like doing a lot of drugs and I was like essentially uh, dope sick for lack of a better term. Um, so I was very like very, very extremely nauseous um, for a period of like two weeks. And my mom was like, <laughs> I don't know why she got this idea, uh, but when I was a kid, I always used to like. Uh, strawberry milkshakes where she would just like make me strawberry milkshake um in like a big tall glass um when i was younger and she was like oh this will help make you feel better um here let me make you this giant strawberry milkshake um and i'll always remember this because i was watching the wild bunch and i was drinking this gigantic milkshake uh and the scene at the end you know where Spoiler That's alert. the Peckinpah one, right? Yeah. Okay, um, that really fucking alert. rules. <laughs> it does. Um, yeah. I've given two spoiler alerts. They all die. Um, <laughs> Wait, you're telling like, me they all die at the end of a Western movie? I know, it's wild. What um, the fuck? Peckinpah is a real Listen idiot. to Ornate Stairwells. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I like just chugged this gigantic milkshake, and I'm watching these... They're like mowed down by a minigun and like I just got Ugh. 
I got so, so sick, like in that moment. Um, that's just another one that's like seared onto my brain. Um, <laughs> and yeah, now I can't drink strawberry milkshakes anymore. So yeah. Um, any, any, uh, stories of condition taste aversion that you have autumn that you want to tell <laughs> or should we get back to the episode? Can't think anything. <laughs> Is there nothing that okay. you like had right before you vomited and now you cannot eat anymore? <laughs> so the thing about uh, living <laughs> 10 years now with Crohn's disease is that I have mm-hmm. vomited like most things. <laughs> yeah. You know? You have to be resilient <laughs> there. Sorry to get dark, but I just, for a long time, just vomited a lot. And so I... I Try not to let it influence uh, stuff I can can and can't eat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, so okay, we move on to episode we? fifteen through eighteen. I think yeah, I think that's where we were. <sighs> I am back. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just heard like a yelp, so I assume that was someone getting into a chair. I I like let out a sigh as I sat down. Oh, sigh, sigh, yelp, same difference. Yeah, it was a it was like a very sharp sigh. Hmm. Um, Emily is going to bed now. So we have to take down the volume a notch. No. She <laughs> sleeps like a rock. <laughs> nice. Um, Me too. I do not. I sleep, I sleep like a rock, except for like after we podcast. <laughs> after we podcast, I'm too often. full of anxiety. Well, anxiety or... Thinking like, about otherwise. all the things you wish you would have said. <laughs> Um, thankfully, oftentimes not that, um, <laughs> sometimes I'm just like wired. It, it tends to either be like that, which I would say is about 25 to 30% of the time. Um, or hello. like, hello. Hi. Um, talking about how I sleep super poorly after recording. Um, it tends to be either like th- that, the anxiety over like, you know what i should have said or done better um but then like 75 percent of the time it's just like that high of like oh yeah i had a really good discussion um Mm -hmm. and i really enjoyed that um but either way i just uh never seemed to get great rest anyway um we were podcasting podcast yeah do we want to get back into it or any 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 goofs beforehand nah i'm ready to go well this okay this isn't exactly a goof but i do want to like make a statement about it um this doesn't necessarily even need to be on like the final cut or whatever um but when like how do I start this? 
if I'm super awkward uh, in terms of like speaking about queerness and specifically using that term, uh, the reason is because I know there are like a lot of straight people out there who think they have a good grasp of like what that term means and like embarrass themselves a lot. Um, so like I am always like aware of not falling into that trap. Um, but then when we're just like talking about it, there's no way around like me using that term mm-hmm. or else it would be, you know, really odd <laughs> and stilted. Um, I mean, not to the extent of ornate stairwells, but I'm always going to be like, this is gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like whenever it comes up, I'm just like, I'm, I'm using it and like speaking about it, not because I'm like, oh yeah, I have a great grasp on this and I'm going to go write an article about what like queerness means. Um, but for like the sake of discussion, like piggybacking on um, how it's being used, like in the moment. Um, I know that's, all of those statements are probably very obvious, but I just wanted to say it like once and for all for ghost divers, because this is going to come up like mm-hmm. forever more. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I'm ready. Um, I bumped my headphone thing, and it's only coming through one ear thing now because. I talked about this beforehand. I have like really nice headphones, but they have like the big headphone jack, not the the little one. Um, people the, talk the so like it's cable. working. Yeah, um, it's just like fully not working now. I'll figure it out while people are talking and just remove all of this background sound. But anyway, yeah, we we know that you're the straight friend, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I should have just I could have just said it all in one sentence. Um, yeah, but. Okay, um, so podcasting. Take yeah. it as a yes. 